This is Shaka Wart Speak. Yeah, right. I was going to say, is this like, is this some sneaky strategy where you guys just kind of like lull me into like regular conversation? <laughs> Which I promise, I promised some people last night that uh, I would be on good behavior. Okay. So, you know, you got to be careful. Okay. Like. <laughs> da, 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 da. Welcome yeah. to Shaco Art Speak. We actually did sneak you into a conversation. Uh, it worked. <laughs> it worked. It's, it's a good strategy. We, we have, we've been waiting. This is like, a year in the making at plus mm-hmm. we've been we've been talking about this messages back and forth having Mikel, miguel carter fisher on on the episode or on our podcast um anyhow <laughs> so we've been waiting to have this this uh artist uh phenomenal thinker artist maker teacher mm-hmm. uh on, on our podcast so this is long overdue so welcome miguel yeah welcome uh, thanks for having me guys yeah I, I woke up this morning i was just like Oh shit! Like today's the day. Like yeah. this is happening. This yeah. is for real. Yeah, yeah, and and so like, and then I felt the same way. So I put on like some rocky music. I did some <laughs> montage push-ups. I like got I got ready, you know, um, and um, and then I went back to sleep for a little while. <laughs> I was gonna say I'm glad y'all felt that way this morning because this morning I woke up and was like, how, how, did I even get sleep? Yeah. So no, I know, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so so much to cover. Um, one thing that we didn't cover is, is Dr. Snacksmell, Gareth Blackwell is here. And, um, (laughs) as always, as always, um, and the reason why we call him Dr. Snacksmell is like, if you buy him like gummy worms or yeah, there's like a few things that if you, if you get those for him, um, he keeps them in his pocket too long (laughs) and then they smell. (laughs) Yeah, so we're gonna be on our best behavior now. Yeah. I just have to get. The, I have to. I, get I would the, like to say that at, at least past the first five or ten minutes, a hundred percent of what we say you can believe. Yeah, um, but in those first five or ten minutes, sometimes it's suspect. It's it's a little. I'm bit. just gonna leave that to y'all out there. So 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 Miguel, like we, I mean, there's too many things that I think we want to talk about. Yeah, I, I was thinking about that this morning. I was running through in my head. Oh, we could talk about this. We could talk about that. I'm like, I'm like, dude, it's like I could. Like talking with you guys, I already know from the conversations we've had in the past that I could come here countless times and every time have a completely different conversation and every true. time that conversation would be worthwhile. Yeah, I feel that. I think that's I think that's real. We you know, backstory is we just we had the honor and privilege of going to your studio, was which was really, really uh galvanizing for Gareth and I. Mm-hmm. So we were pretty jazzed yeah. up afterwards. We were pretty like, yeah, energized. On on one of the days where we were probably both the most tired, <laughs> yeah. so you gave us like Iron Man chest energy, you know, like the little like piece in the center, like was like I came back to life a little bit after that. Oh, that that's great to hear because um, I actually wanted to tell you guys that after you guys left, I went the opposite way. Oh no! I, I had a total <laughs> fucking emotional oh, sorry. meltdown. Like oh, I, no. I, I, I was in a pretty dark place. Um, oh no, Miguel! <laughs> what happened, man? Well, it was because, and don't get me wrong, I very much like you gave me such useful feedback on that painting about the way uh, space was um, this is a, a painting I'm working on of a family. It's a narrative painting about struggling with alcoholism. Um, but the kind of, I, I guess, sort of the technical approach um, that I'm taking in the painting is 
it is derived from Baroque painting mm -hmm. and that there's this sort of like scumbled sort of chiaroscuro and stuff like that. But it's a much more complex uh, arrangement of lighting. And what has happened is there's this contradiction in space between drawing and the actual thickness of the paint. And, and you pointed that out to me, and it's something, it was like, it's the kind of thing that's always nagging me. I could feel it, but I couldn't find that thing I was feeling, and you just put your finger right on it. And it just made me realize that I've probably only had two really helpful conversations about painting in the last year. Mm. And that's what really got to me, and that's what really hurt, is I feel so... Um, is this feeling of isolation. Yeah. And, uh, and what really was particularly, uh, I guess, meaningful to me in that uh, I, I don't, it wasn't really a criticism. Um, you know, you, you, you made no value judgment. Yeah. You simply made me aware of a dynamic happening in my painting that I was not aware of. Right. And, you know, it kind of shook my foundation. And, and then I noticed that I have this natural tendency, like I know you saw the other painting mm -hmm. I did of the woman undressing and, you know, surrounding her, all that darkness and stuff, that's painted with roofing tar, yeah. you know, where I'm making the, the shadows. And then I'm like, okay, well, I have this, and that's not the first painting where I've gone for that kind of, almost like an imposto in the yep. shadows yep. and this translucency right. and the light. And I'm like, okay, so on some unconscious level, I'm intentionally putting in these uh, contradicting yep. dynamics where the viscosity of the paint is telling a story that exists in almost kind of a, a narrative irony to the pictorial That's right. framework. And I don't know why I do it, but now I'm thinking about it. Yeah. And I'm thinking like, God, like, God, I needed that. But I felt sad because... I, I don't, it's so uh, seldom that I get that kind of uh, constructive feedback that enables me to grow. And, um, but ult ultimately it was fruitful. I, um, I went swimming after that. And, uh, <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm have so you ever, have you ever seen that movie? Uh, have you guys ever seen uh, Blue, the French movie with uh, Juliette oh, no. Binoche? No. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, well, it's a movie where she keeps all her emotions pent up. Um, wow. It's a pretty tragic film. She loses her family. It's about the grief process. But the only time you see her emote, her really let loose is while she's swimming. Uh -huh. There's these beautiful underwater shots. Um, and that's how I felt. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm Juliet Binoche in blue right now. I'm like... I'm <laughs> where like, did you go swimming? At the YMCA okay, okay. downtown. Gotcha. But yeah, yeah, like I'm like, you know... But I get I get too emotional about painting, man. Like my fucking eyes were welling up with like anxiety and stress, yeah. and and then I did like a whole evaluation with myself about like, okay, Miguel, like what do you need to grow? Right. Like what's really eating at you? And I found that like you know, opportunity is a double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. You know, I have this show coming up, but I feel like painting doesn't give a fuck if you have a show coming or not. Yeah. Painting yeah. wants to do what painting wants right. to do. You know, right. you're kind of beholden to the beast. Yeah. And yeah. uh and it has its own will. And um, you know, so it's like so our conversation pushed my mind past the current body of work, which is not finished. Yeah, oh, man. Into, oh, gosh. 
into where where do I need to go next? Right. Where can I take this? Sure. And how can I create uh, something that to me feels more whole, more mm-hmm. rounded? Like how is this going to grow? And what what, what I, one thing I really love too is you know I recently saw a painter. Um, not um, I made a promise to myself that I wouldn't shit talk. Yeah. So yeah. I'm gonna I'm avoiding names. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, and. You know, uh, but this is a painter um, I admire, and um, uh, for some reasons I feel frustration for others. But you know, they said that you can't tell the difference between a color that has been uh, gained through glazing uh-huh. and through translucency versus an impasto. Right. And you know, of co- in the figurative art world right now, um, in this whole kind of like there's this revolution of like all these ateliers popping up yep, and yep. you know, this kind of pushing a French academic painting and everything mm-hmm. like that. But, and, and even when I was at New York Academy, there was this like subtle bias where the teachers were always trying to discourage me from glazing and scumbling. And, uh, and this attitude that, Oh, it's exaggerated. The old masters didn't really paint that way or, Oh, it just looks that way because the paintings are old. And I'm like, bullshit. You know, a scumble in a glaze um, versus an impasto, like all of that stuff matters. Mm-hmm. All of that stuff holds content. And if it didn't, you wouldn't have come into my studio and noticed that discrepancy because you weren't you weren't responding to the the drawing. Yeah. You know, you weren't responding to yeah. some of the anomalies in my perspective, which I'm which are there, but I'm not gonna. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what 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 you were responding to was the actual physical mm-hmm. presence of paint is a three dimensional thing. Mm-hmm. You know, as you were responding to dirt suspended in oil, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, and then, you know, and it just got me thinking more about like how we're, you know, just the culture of Instagram, of yeah. social media, of, <sighs> I'm just so exhausted of it's like artists have sort of forgotten that painting is physical substance, right? That it's right. A, it is a physical act to paint. Right. Um, I mean, and it, and in, and in that so much poetry mm-hmm. is being lost, you know, um, I think what is marvelous about painting is I think of it as this place where music and sculpture meet. Mm-hmm. Um, it will never have the physicality of sculpture. It will not. It will never have the harmonic, ephemeralness. Yeah, it'll, of it'll never music. fill our audible space, our yeah. oral, like our our hearing space. But but light is the way light interacts. You know, those are harmonic relationships. Mm-hmm. You know, it's those are vibrations, wavelengths happening in the air, and then paint itself is a physical, tactile substance, yeah. and it's sort of. I feel like painting is at its strongest when it's when it's at that place where where body meets spirit. Yeah. You know, it's it, it's it's painting it, it I don't know, for me and this I don't mean to go metaphysical, uh, you know, but I guess what I'm getting at is uh there is no such thing as separation of mind and body. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we when we when we experience something, we experience it whole and with um 
and painting, it's like if you're a painter, man, like you live in that space. Mm-hmm. You know, I think Western civilization is largely foundationed on these ideas of the separation of the aesthetic and the rational, you know, the mind, the body, yeah, the dualism. You know, there's so much false dualism. Mm-hmm. And but if you're a painter, you live, you work, you operate in this space that if you're truly in it, inevitably leads you to realizing the falsity mm-hmm. of uh, those dualisms. Yeah. And, you know, and then from there, of course, that got me thinking about education and how that, you know, and uh, but anyways, uh Thank you for the nervous breakdown. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> dude, I had I, I just came away going. <laughs> I mean, I didn't go swimming because I'm not a good swimmer. Gareth, I don't think Gareth went swimming, but I did. Gareth and I did talk, and I was like, well, you know, from 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 my standpoint, I was like, there's not a lot of. Th- so I I did echo something that you said. I said, you know, I'm around. I'm in our foundations, and in most of the time, from from like a maker standpoint, like. Um, there's not a lot of conversation about this stuff at all so that you realize how dulled out you are because mm-hmm. you're like, Oh wait, I'm around. Like I can actually, there's something going on here. Um, and to even try to get at that, you know, like I I'll often say like painting is the, you know, think of pain as like gathered matter that embeds the effects of time and the effects of light. So it's the gathering up of that matter and yeah. embedded in it is the effects of time and light or, you know, both in and, um, that by itself, crudely stated, uh, should put you on pause because it's it's like you start you're, you're starting to talk about like the nature of things, like the nature of of us, as as you were saying. Mm-hmm. That we're one, it's like you know, I've, Gareth and I would always kick it around just in terms of like talking about ourselves as like you know a psychosomatic unity, like that we're not a it's we're not it's not you know, mind up here independent from body, you know, like yeah. that's, that's really a false dilemma. Um, and, uh, I do think, yeah, when you start messing with dirt, like you were saying, suspended on canvas, you're messing with gravity, you're messing with air. I mean, all of a sudden, everything that is essential and part and parcel is, is coming to bear in a way that is like afforded to us is finite individuals that cannot encompass the whole of the world we find ourselves in. So, but we can mess with or partake with a part of it, you know? So the gathering up of raw material and in fashioning something out of it, um, is an enduring and compelling dance that says something about the world we find ourselves in, but also says something essential about who we are and what we are, I think. And so, um, to see that lost and to see that flattened, and to see that bifurcated and to see that like the lights go dim on that kind of enduring reality in our own sort of time frame, right? Like right now, our current moment, it's hard to swallow, especially if you've devoted a lot of time to it. Like, you know, we've come from different trajectories, but in our own paths, there's a lot of time devoted to it. Mm-hmm. And so in, in intimacy creates awareness. And so then you can't undo what you know to be true to the extent that it is. I mean, that's what's, I mean, I think intimacy is the, the key word. I mean, that's, that's what I realized is the, um, in this new body of work. I mean, I was actually, I've been kicking around the title, um, intimacy and detachment for mm. my next show. Cause it's all about, um, 
intimacy and uh we've we so champion um work that speaks uh to masses mm-hmm. you know we we the the political sphere is it's you know it's almost like like this is the only sphere that's treated with any legitimacy yeah and it used to be science it used to be science yeah and it, it really has uh i mean it's a great insight just it's like it used to be like science was the only legitimizing epistemology mm-hmm. and it really has shifted clearly to politics as yeah. the only legitimizing epistemology yeah yeah that that actually that legitimizing it's in, it, I'm, I'm glad you said that because i was actually i was thinking about some of my students today um, back when I used to teach at VCU and some conversations I had with them uh, about other courses they were taking and frustrations they were having. Um, and also my own experience at University of Hartford, uh, where I would kind of get into these arguments with like the conceptual art clan and they're like, painting's dead. And I'm like, mm-hmm. How can painting be dead? Mm-hmm. That's like saying cooking is dead. Yeah. <laughs> it's like saying dance is dead. It's right. like it's like but it's because what legitimizes an art form to them is the institution. That it, it is the apparatus of the university, the apparatus of the gallery, mm-hmm. of criticism, of and all of those things operate in a political sphere. Yep. You know, and it, it is the and that the politics are what justifies you. And that's sort of one thing I kind of hate about this, uh, you know, the kind of postmodern mode of education is every student, before they weren't even learn how to draw, they're made to feel responsible for all of art history. Mm-hmm. Because everything you're doing, it never comes from you. Mm-hmm. It's always has to be referential. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's all about, I think Robert Hughes put it well when he was describing mannerism. Uh, he said, mannerism at the end of the Renaissance is kind of like in the relationship to the high Renaissance is very much like postmodernism to modernism, mm-hmm. you know, that modernism was kind of trying to push a language forward, trying to break new ground. And then you have this generation that comes after. And he says, ultimately all it adds to is a lot of, you know, it's just, it's, it's an insider conversation mm-hmm. because if everything you're doing is referential you have to, it's like, this is my issue with like so much conceptual art. I see that, you know, you know, they pat themselves on the back for being political and blah, blah, blah. But it's like, but you're also being elitist because mm-hmm. in denying the body, uh, which is something we all as humans share and denying visceral aesthetic experience, all you can provide is commentary on the aesthetic experience that has been provided by artists of the past. And if you aren't already on that wavelength, there's no way to jump in, mm-hmm. you know, like it's like asking the students to read film criticism of films that they've never watched. Mm-hmm. It is unfair. It puts so much pressure on it's the hermetically student. sealed Like you don't yeah. have access mm-hmm. to it. And the, and the, but the worst thing of all is it makes students feel like their own experience uh, is delegitimate, mm-hmm. that their experience is not valid because it doesn't have the legitimacy of the political right or also in in yeah so like their experience but even perhaps prior to even stepping to or obtaining to those experiences it it even delegitimizes the the desire that you even would want to do anything other than Mm -hmm. exist within this politicized milieu of of conceptualism yeah 
um, because, you know, you're, you know, if you come in and you're, um, you know, I gotta be careful. I say this, but if you come into academia, perhaps in an institution like our own or like Gareth and I's, um, and you have a certain set of desires, you're going to be put through like a prismatic, uh, experience. It's going to splinter you off. And what you're going to be forced to do perhaps is assign value to each splinter and decide which one of those splinters is uh, worth hanging your hat on. And then, and then that, what that does is like now those things are never enjoined again and you go into a department and you've left behind a bunch of stuff because now there's a pressure. And so yeah. like, so like if you go into painting, but you really know how to draw. Yeah. You know, that's why one of the primary, well, I had my reservations about VCU um, in general, but that was really, you know, when I was choosing where I wanted to go to school, you know, when I was done with high school, um, that's, I saw how VCU was doing that. You know, I saw that fracturing, I saw that splintering, and um, I had a portfolio review, and, uh, you know, I asked the person reviewing me, I said, well, I have these other interests. You know, I'm also a classical guitarist. Mm -hmm. You know, if I go into painting and printmaking, you know, would there be room for me to also explore music with their, and they kind of looked at me and I don't remember what they said, but I remember the look on their face Yeah, and that, and the look on their face, um, was it's doubtful, Mm -hmm. you know, and I just, I couldn't accept an institution like VCU because I did not want to, uh, be set on a track. I didn't want to give up agency over my own education. So I chose a much smaller program Mm -hmm. and thank God I did because university of Hartford at that time had the most amazing philosophy department. Mm. And I think I ended ultimately, I probably spent more time uh, with the philosophy department than I did in, um, painting because Mm -hmm. I think across the board, you know, they just had, uh, so many teachers of at that time, a lot of them have, have either retired or are mm-hmm. now deceased. In fact, all of them have now retired or um, have passed on. Um, but I got there at this like golden moment mm-hmm. where, um, and a lot of what I studied in philosophy, you know, was about um, these like kind of overlooked thinkers like Charles Sanders Peirce, William James, John Dewey. You know, I read what they had to say about the mind, about mm-hmm. education. Uh, John Dewey's book, Art as Experience, changed my life. Uh, same with like William James' uh, pluralistic universe and stuff. And I realized that he, in American thought, there is this rich legacy of denying uh, and, and addressing the falsity of this sort of dualism mm-hmm that the art world has structured itself mm-hmm. around. Like, you know, because everyone, I, you know, growing up and everything, I remember my senior year, uh, my buddy uh, Sean Bullock, um, who's also the uh, lead singer in my band, um, or his band, I should say I'm the guitarist in his band. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I remember the two of us were really struggling when we were 18 years old because... Being brought up in Richmond, we had two choices, like utter and complete nihilism 
or um, adopting some sort of like fundamentalist system of values, and neither felt right. Mm-hmm. And it, it, and it's again, you know, it comes out of that that duality, mm-hmm. that separation of mind and body that just isn't true. And, it, and you know, and it carries over into the art and that everyone I met was either a conceptualist or a formalist. Mm-hmm. And both of those are bullshit. Mm-hmm. This idea that painting is just about the paint, mm-hmm. you know, it, it reduces, um, it reduces everything to being design. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, you know, I, I guess as Dewey would put it, you know, it, it separates the work from lived experience. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it misclassifies design, is yeah. what I should say. And and on the other hand, you have conceptualism where the body doesn't matter at all. Mm-hmm. It's like, fuck your individual experience. Fuck how you feel. I'm making an important point, and I should be valued for that. And that is also just such a, um, you know, it's, it's violence on your selfhood. Mm-hmm. I think both those avenues... And they're, they're, they're kind of, as far as I'm concerned, they're just kind of like opposite sides of the same piece of shit, you know? It's like, it's all the same nonsense. And it's something that is, I think, constructed through, it's something you could only arrive at through theorizing. Mm-hmm. I don't think any true empirical look at how we learn, how we experience, what our daily lives are like would ever naturally lead somebody to such um, harsh like categories. It's like, of course, you know, if your work has subject matter, of course that subject matter matters. Mm-hmm. Of course your concepts matter. Yeah. But at the same time, of course your choice of colors matter. Of course what shapes you decide. Yeah. It all matters. Yeah. I always say that nothing is neutral. Exactly. So, so therefore, it's a it's a lazy it's a lazy way of discounting things that you don't care to spend enough time dealing with. And the fact is, we don't have enough time to deal with all of it because there's that much going on. Mm-hmm. But rather than acknowledge it and have a, a posture of humility, we invert that and and we take a posture of superiority, mm-hmm. which means we over overstate or stress our given vantage point, mode, medium, position, and so so. Can someone in in my mind at least? I'm like you know like uh, I make I make design objects, but I'm not stating those as supreme, superior, avant garde, leading the charge, and they're not to the exclusion of um, you know what you might do or what Gareth does, or in, if anything, I see them as as facets in concert with each other, and they're they're humble offerings. So so you know so. Can can someone be a conceptual artist in my mind? Yes. Is that a hierarchical? It's like a pyramid scheme or something. You know, it's like you get the con- the conceptual artist that then uh, gets everybody else to what's that OnStar? What's it called? Or like, you know, wh- what's what's that company called? They're always hitting you up. Man. Amway. Amway. It's like yeah. Amway. It's like <laughs> it's like you get Amwayed into it, and yeah. then you're stuck, and you're like, oh my gosh, like. And so then people get stuck and they overcorrect the other way and they just become a hard formalist. And it's like, there's amazing things that are just there when you think of it in formal terms, but it, that's not the absolute standard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so um, 
that's always the thing is the compartmentalizing creates disunity. And, and then we fragment into parts that we assume as the whole. And it just keeps splintering inverse. And so we, and you know, that's the thing that Gareth and I was talking about or always kicking around is like that perpetual degradation creates perpetual dehumanizing effects because it denies what you're talking about. It denies experience um, and uh, inauthenticates and rearranges that which we think, uh, you know, selfhood makes us human, makes us, makes us what we are. And I actually think that this is really at stake. It's like we make mud holes and build culture around those as though that's the, that's the pinnacle when it's actually the inverse. I was going to say something very similar. Um, I think that when we push real hard into those spaces, like when we stand, we, we just, you know, kind of live and die on the hill of whatever, fill in the blank art term we have, right? Conceptualism, formalism, whatever. Um, then what we do is we're, we're actually pushing hard towards uh, a negation of the definition that I think matters. Mm-hmm. I think what we, yeah. we end up happening is saying, Actually, because I see you posturing so heavily in this position, I think it shows that you're con- you you actually don't believe your concepts exist in the world, mm-hmm. and that they don't they're not actually there. Yeah, they're still just in your head. Right. And if you were jockeying so hard for these to be a real thing, we probably wouldn't have the same sort of performative art that's going on in this like stancing that you're doing. Yeah, um, which has always been something ever since uh, starting undergrad has has always bothered me. I had professors that I looked up to. But they would have certain things that they could not budge on, right? That didn't feel like non-budgeable items. Yep, you know, it's very so confusing. so in design, we, it's it's heavy. Like you, you go, you go form, you go function, right? And you either are a designer or a product designer, right? You're either one or the other. You, you can't do both. And it's like I, I had professors telling me, teaching me stuff about form, and I was like, doesn't this matter though? And they're like, well, what do you mean? Well, you're talking about form, but shouldn't it matter? Because you're in, in your definition of form, you always have to negate function. So how does it matter? Yeah. Like, yeah, why do yeah. I care past what you have to say? Right. Um, and you don't get clear answers in those spaces. Well, so see, it always came to the place where I said, well, I guess you're just negating your own definitions. Yeah. And that, see, that's the thing is it's interesting is like that splintering down burrows into every zone. And, you know, so it even produces the kind of person that overstresses like some of the values that I think you hold most, most dearly. Um, because then there there's neglect there in overcompensating. And so it's, I mean, it's, um, yeah, I mean, I'd say probably in the best possible sense, the most charitable sense I could, um, what it always produces is a lack of fullness right. in the work. Yeah. Always. So you have a work that is always going to rely in some ways much more heavily upon the personal, uh, descriptive narrative that's being spouted by the artist rather than the work itself. The work has a hard time standing alone. Right. In a lot of ways, right? Um, and I think that's something like it, you know, if if it can't, if it can't attach to me in some way as a human having an experience, then why am I ever going to care about all the the p's and q's that you followed? Well, that's the interesting mm-hmm. thing about the 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 kind of the abstract nature of conceptualism plus elitism, yeah, which is a kind of a, a preservation raft that is exclusive to those that can decode and get access to the raft is, is the raft is crafting a dematerialized world around itself. And so the populist entry point has been made available and people are importing themselves into that. But they're, but the irony is their minds are cut off. So it's conceptualism 
gone awry with your mind cut off. It's, it's, it's like the opposite. So you have your conceptualist gatekeepers and then you have everybody else and they exist like a Geico commercial. They can um, move ironic parts around like on the, on the fridge and go, ha, 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 look at that. And they like, provided they know how to laugh the right way, be cynical the right way, be insiderish the right way, provided they can mm-hmm. posture that way, they're in. And, and most people want to be in. And it's to the detriment of physicality. It's to mm-hmm. the detriment of our bodies, to the detriment of our selfhood. And so then you get into like classes and it's, it is like Wally. It's like, yeah, yeah. Um, it is people that have like not used them, the fullness that is there for them. Yeah, we got There's entire parts of ourselves that are just, just atrophied. Atrophied, you know. So you're like, hey, we're gonna draw. You know, I tell students like you're gonna make a twenty or thirty hour drawing. Um, <laughs> like what? And some of them haven't made a drawing longer than forty five minutes. I was gonna say, yeah. You know, I, you know, I told students yesterday like we're going to spend half this class just sort of scaffolding, uh, measuring. You're, you're you're working off of a off of a horizontal and vertical plumb line. We're looking at angles like. If you can rush into a skeleton in 10 minutes in your mind, and you do, um, so what? You can do it. You've already got that. So put that aside. Practice being patient. Mm-hmm. Actually get the proportions correct because that ability to rush to the finish will look a lot better and be far more rewarding because you framed everything up to actually be in proportion. Like So fight for, for looking, fight for noticing, fight for patience, mm-hmm. fight for diligence, fight for those things. Yeah. And you could see people really, really have like, and I said 35% of you in every class, including mm-hmm. this one right now, are going to ignore exactly what I said and what I drew. And you're going to draw a giant skull on the page, not even deal with the whole skeleton. Mm-hmm. Even though I told you it all has to fit on the page at, at this proportion, you're still going to do it anyways. And you're going to act like I can't see you. And so <laughs> then I drew like a big skull and I drew some tiny legs and some like beans for like the rib cage. And I was like, you're going to draw the big skull. And because you've overcommitted sentimentally to this, you're, you sentimentalize your effort. You're going to try to sneak in a small body and act like you don't know how it happened. Yeah. Oh yeah. And then you're going to tell me, help me, please help me. And I'm going to be like, I did. I preemptively yep. told you. <laughs> Anyhow. Oh man, that is, you just described the first, uh, half of every drawing class I have ever taught. Like I tell them like, these are the tools you know, like plumb lines, comparative measurement, yeah. um, angles, like, you know, and of course there's a, a certain kind of expressive freedom that comes about when those things become second nature. Yep. But I tell them, I tell my students all the time, um, like, you know, before this conversation started, you know, you're talking about how knowledge is not an app you can upload. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately that is sort of the model that so many of our students are now running on. I tell them, um, I'm like, I can't, just because you can conceptually understand how something is done doesn't mean you can do it. Yeah. Like, you know, um, you have to train, you know, and I tell my students day one, like, this is training. Mm-hmm. This is weightlifting. Yep. You know, like, this isn't even, the, this isn't even the full sport. No. This is, <laughs> you know, this yeah. is just like, I'm just your weight trainer. And we're, and we're going to build these muscles and, um, and there's just, again, like going back to this separation of, of mind and body, 
is the students today, they're, they're so detached from the realm of experience. Mm-hmm. They're so detached from their own lived experience, their own lived history. They live in such a world of screens and flatness and concept uh, that they, they don't know how to do this kind of learning. Mm-hmm. You know, they've all been raised on standardized testing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and they think that the goal, the goal is the grade. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm like, every good opportunity that's ever come in my life has been based on my portfolio, not on my transcript. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's, it's, it's training. The mm-hmm. concept might be very simple. Great. You got it. Now do it and do it yep. and do it and do it until you don't even have to think about it. Mm-hmm. And then once, and again, this is, uh, like I said, this is you know why I'm so grateful for uh, Hartford's philosophy department. Um, William James wrote beautifully about this in his psychology works about the importance of habit mm-hmm. and developing good habits is because when you develop good habits, um, when knowledge becomes embodied, mm-hmm. when it's lived knowledge, when it's muscle memory, you know, I tell my uh, it, it frees your mind up to then tackle the next concern. That's right. Like I remember getting to a point drawing where I said, "What if I don't spend as much time measuring? Will the drawing still work?" And I did it as an experiment, and then there was this tipping point where I met, I went from measuring, uh, just to make sure I was somewhere in the right ballpark, to measuring on occasion is a corrective mm-hmm. device and it's because I was already doing it yep. on an unconscious level. And that gave it's me freedom. Second nature. Yeah, it gave mm-hmm. me freedom yep. to think about things like uh like line quality, mm-hmm. composition. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's like let's you know, our our students they're <laughs> If they were bodybuilders, they'd be, they'd be really puny. Yeah, you know, yeah. like. But instead of saying <laughs> I'm puny, they would change the rules of what body mass uh, and muscularity, <laughs> what those standards are. They would shift the standards, yeah. to accommodate the state that they're in. And I think you know, I think that that's one of the things that that's not like. I'm not like old old man generation saying this subsequent generation. It's like it extends really deep into the past as far as a progressive move that land, like kind of has landed us here. Um, you know, it's, it's such a manifold complex problem. Um, and it sort of feels like a title. It's a tidal wave, you know, as far as like, okay, so how do we, you know, and this is maybe for, for a little bit later in the conversation, cause I definitely want to ask you uh, a couple of questions that kind of go back first, but I feel like, this as someone who cares three people who actually care, which is why you would get frustrated. And, uh-huh. and that doesn't account for our own limitations or, or what we're still obtaining to in our own understandings. Um, if this is the tidal wave and you're staring down the future, it starts to make you ask the question, well, 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 what then? Like, like how much do you fight for these things? Is it, is it something where a tidal wave crashes and then it dissipates into the sand and you let it, have it say, and, and, you know, are you like a Benedictine monk? Do you just wait? (laughs) And then like, you kind of like usher out this like preserved understanding for a a generation to follow. That's going to have more of a hunger for, uh, an understanding other than the one they've been assimilating and and adopting and, and living out wholesale. And, 
you know, part of me thinks that that's the case. Part of me thinks that, you know, um, but our lives are pretty short and you're like, you know, I'll be 45 this year. Like, I'm like, like you let a generation or two go by. I'm, I'm at the end of my life. And so it's like, what, what do I do with what I've got? I mean, I really, I really wrestle with that question. And Gareth and I talk about it like every day. Um, yeah, it's tough. I think, you know, kind of thinking through all this stuff, um, you know, you mentioned intimacy earlier, Miguel, and I think that that is like a huge thing because mm. I think there's a there's a huge lack of intimacy. I think in most of our society, um, and there's a, a psychologist who said something about like intimacy being uh, the willingness to accept um, emotional bids from other people, um, but also the willingness to extend them. Right. So it's the the intimacy of a two way street, mm-hmm. which then makes me think very heavily about the fact that we are we are. 80 years past the the starting point of one of the most uh, prolific economic booms in world history mm-hmm. from the 1940s into post-World War II culture. Um, so we are far enough ingrained where the idea of being someone whose sole purpose is to consume is heavily a part of the culture we live in. Mm-hmm. So even, you know, when I hear the the art school conversations, whether actually in art school or outside of it, where people are bashing this idea of consuming, I'm like, I don't know that we fully understand how much we consume. Mm-hmm. Like how much your life is based upon or, or predicated on the fact that you need to consume in order to live your lives and have your days. Um, and that happens even, so thinking about that in conjunction of like what this means for production mm-hmm. within the arts. And when I see... Um, students and makers and, you know, folks I follow who are so-called professionals doing work that does not look like it is professional work. Mm-hmm. And it's like, how much are we hindered because we, we formulate our lives based on consumption as a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's meant for me. I'm the audience of one. It is for me to take in, whether it's through my screen or whatever else. Um, at the same time, I'm not willing to really extend emotional bids to other people and accept them. So there's a lack of intimacy there. So I have a lack of intimacy with the work I do. I have a lack of intimacy with the uh, the society I'm in. I have a lack of intimacy with the materials that I use, like you're talking about, Miguel. Like there's there's this this level of intimacy that's not there that, that just points so much to what we harp on a lot, Ryan, the, the ideas of community and knowing and being known. Like, mm-hmm. you know, those things are there. Yeah. Um, they're huge. And so when you talk about the tidal wave, that's I'm kind of seeing like what is that tidal wave as it's come in the last 80 years. Yeah. And it yeah, seems yeah, yeah. that a lot of these things, like you're saying, it really is playing into a question of, well, now what? Mm-hmm. I think that's really, um, it's cool hearing that put into a historical framework. Um, cause I, I have a tendency to kind of think about things on a, uh, more of a interpersonal level. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I'm a, um, I always think like my work, I don't do work that speaks to a crowd. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't do work that speaks to a demographic or any kind of collective. You know, I always think like where I want to reach people, and this might sound weird or whatever, but I always think to myself like where I want my paintings to reach people is in that that space um, where people find themselves between sleeping and waking. Mm-hmm. Because to mm-hmm. me, that is the time that kind of like dream space where, where I feel both most liberated and at the same time, like the most in touch with what's actually going on with me, mm-hmm. what's actually happening in my body, what's actually happening, like how memories are affecting me, you know, what my affections truly are. 
And, um, and I think I have personally felt the, um, you know, as critical as I am of the status quo, like I am also a victim of it. And, um, and probably in some ways uh, perpetuate it because in myself, I recognize this uh, difficulty, feeling intimacy. Mm-hmm. You know, I can, I can give people information about myself. I will gladly talk about just about any aspect of my life and stuff, but I've noticed like sharing information is not, does not make me feel closer Mm-hmm. to anyone the mm-hmm. facts of my life and I always think about this uh, there's a great Tom Waits quote I can't remember the whole thing but you know he says we confuse information for knowledge yep. mm-hmm. and yeah, I'm yeah. like and it's like and what I'm starving for is sharing a kind of knowledge mm-hmm. and by that I mean a kind of shared experience and that's what creating work of art that as you guys said earlier stands outside of yourself mm-hmm. can do like I think the misconception of so much um, art education is that this idea that art is about um, self, that self-expression is an act of getting up there and saying, this is how I feel, this mm-hmm. is what I think. You know, my dad used to tell his foundation students at VCU, if I stub my toe and scream, you'll all know I'm in pain, but none of you would call it opera. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> That's a great... That's a great sentiment. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, and what my dad was getting at is what uh, John Dewey referred to as the distinction between self-expression and self-exposure. Mm. And um, we have a lot of people exposing themselves. Mm-hmm. For example, you know, when I share the facts of my life with someone, you know, I'm exposing mm-hmm. myself, and I'm comfortable with that. But self-expression is a lot trickier because with self-expression, you're not. It's it's bigger than you. Mm-hmm. It's you're creating you create something outside of yourself with which people can bring forward their own experience. Like you said, it's mm-hmm. it's it's a two way yeah. street, and that's how art should be. Mm-hmm. Like you know, so when I start these paintings, I, I begin with like a memory. You know, I begin in this very personal space, but the um, but I try to I try to push so hard. Uh, through my own experience that I find what's universal in it. Mm-hmm. And I think, and that's where um, I think the formal uh, structure, that's that's where composition, mm-hmm. that's where design mm-hmm. comes to because it's like, yeah, the concept behind my work might be a very specific experience, but through that, um, through that, dialogue between subject and form you know you produce content and that content can transcend the individual it can carry the experience forward so that the work does not become just a declaration um of me Mm -hmm. this is my life this is what happened to me but becomes a place where people can share in a common experience Mm -hmm. Um, it, it becomes a meeting place and that's where real interconnection is. That's where real intimacy is and it's where real generosity is. And as we keep, uh, corroding, um, the, the body and selfhood is, you know, and we make, uh, opportunities for real intimacy, real 
human connection, um, real self-expression, um, or expression that, ex- I should say, extends beyond the limits of the self, less and less possible in our society. And it's, it's devastating. And I, I struggle with it in the classroom, but, you know, I struggle with it, you know, in my own heart every day. Um, a real turning point for me that made me aware of this is a painting I did when I was in grad school called The Morning After. And it was based on when I was six years old. And it was the first time I was aware, became aware of um, alcoholism Mm. and that my father was an alcoholic. And I remember getting up and walking into the kitchen and just seeing him leaned over the table just completely uh, just in this state of deep regret and fear. And looking back, I think what's running through his mind was, I'm a junkie. Like, do I really have what it takes to be a dad? Mm -hmm. You know, because I just, you know, I was, you know, my dad really wasn't um, a regular part of my life until I was about six years old. Mm. And that was a real challenge for him because, you know, he felt like he was a mess. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I always tell my dad, tell people, you know, my dad did the best he could for as long as he could. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like he he had already on in so many ways was so far gone in addiction by the time he was like in his early thirties that, you know, (laughs) you know, my dad would always say, everybody knows that this story has a sad ending. Mm. You know, he kind of knew, like, that this defeat was waiting. Mm -hmm. But he was like, fuck it, until that day, I'm going to try to be a good dad. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to do my best. And, um, And I remember that morning, and I remember walking up to my dad, and I just had never seen him so angry Mm -hmm. and so disappointed in himself. And I remember him pulling me in really tight and a lot harder than he had ever like held me before. And I wanted to do a painting about that moment. And in, in my first uh, sketches and drawings of the painting, I literally reconstructed my kitchen, you know, the tile floors, where the window was, da 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 and so and I looked at it and I'm like, it's just a guy sitting in a chair with his back turned. You know? And I realized, oh, this is this is self-exposure this is this is how i remember it Mm -hmm. and then um who cares Mm -hmm. who gives a shit Mm -hmm. what my kitchen looked like is that what the story is about like no no it's so what i did was i used linear perspective and to construct a kitchen um completely from my imagination um that was not a realistic space not a kitchen anyone would actually have, but it, it was a psychological space. Mm-hmm. You know, I used one-point perspective. I lowered the horizon line to that of a child so that the refrigerator and the counters are, like, daunting, mm-hmm. feel like these large, massive obelisks, you know, and I used a kind of, like, opacity and heaviness in the composition where it and, – and I wanted to make sure – that everything pulled past the borders mm-hmm. of the picture frame so that there wasn't a way to the left and or a way to the right. There was a single path mm-hmm. 
And in that path, it was me as a child, or I should say the viewer now as a child, confronting this much larger adult figure and, um, and having no choice but to go forward mm-hmm. and engage that confrontation. And then at the end of the painting, I added a window. Mm-hmm. And, and I did this, you know, later I did a drawing of my dad um, in the ICU. And I also put in like a window and stuff that wasn't there. It's just a recurring thing. I, I think I was, I was trying to give my dad hope. Mm-hmm. I think that was me just being like, you know, it's, it's sort of like I couldn't save him in real life, so I keep trying to save him over and over again mm-hmm. in my art. And, um, yeah, and so the composition, it is a total fiction. Mm-hmm. It is a construct based on color and light and linear perspective, you know, the the, the devices of pictorial space. Mm-hmm. Um but it tells the truth of the situation in a way that a literal representation or more faithful representation to my own personal memories of how things went down never could. Mm -hmm. And that is the distinction between um, self-exposure and self-expression. And I try try to get my students to understand that, the whole idea that, like, you know, art is a lie that tells the truth. You know, it is a, it is mm-hmm. a construct that we can build. And it's like, you know, it kind of reminds me of like arguing with people about religion. Like I was talking with a friend of mine who's a very, very devout um, Christian and also a painter. And we were talking about uh, biblical literalism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I come from a family of very religious people on my mom's side, largely Baptist on my dad's side, all Catholic. And you know, on my mom's side, there's multiple generations of ministers and stuff. So I've seen this broad mm-hmm. range, you know, the Catholics read, you know, my family read the Bible more metaphorically, you know, and mm-hmm. then on the Baptist side, there's more literalism and stuff. And the issue I had with like people getting hung up on like more literal interpretations is it's sort of like you're missing the point Mm -hmm. and um it's kind of like who cares Mm -hmm. if it's like if you approach a biblical text is a work of art um i feel like you get much more to the heart of the matter than Mm -hmm. if you try to read it as a historical document Mm -hmm. um because and this probably will offend some people but it's like whether you know lazarus was really raised from the dead or whether, you know, Christ made it so some blind guy could see, or even whether he died and was resurrected, all of those things to me are so much more powerful as metaphor, so much more powerful as art than they are as literal truth, because what does whether it actually happened that way or not have to do with the... Um, the poetic truth, the spiritual truth, the ethical truth, the truth that can inform you as to how to live your life. Um, and we get so hung up on, again, the, uh, this goes back to the only legitimizing force in our society being the political, you know, and, and, it, and it's just so amazing. It's like we're losing a, at that end too because when it comes to things that are factual, like global warming, 
you know, you know, it's like, we don't want to accept the facts, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, right. we're kind of like, we can't, um, so we've, you know, it's, we've, we've just thrown out so much good and have devolved into such pointless tribalism and the things we've chosen to legitimize our faith, to legitimize our practice and our relationships are, have been so whittled down, so isolated, so detached from lived experience that it's, they've just become a collection of of absurdities that stand to, uh, stand to do more destruction than, than good. And, um, I don't know. I don't know, man. It's stressful being alive right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, you're wrestling with a lot, like, you know, there's like several, there's like, like, there's like 10 conversations in there I want to have, but so a couple of things. One is it's just making me think about is sorry. I think in, I think in thematic spirals. No, yeah, we're dude, like, I don't, I don't think in yeah, subject. I yeah. think in theme. Totally. So that's you're, why no, I, you're good, man. That's this why is, I was a philosophy major. Yeah. You're amongst friends. <laughs> and um, that's why we don't, we don't put limits on the podcast because we, this, you know, yeah. So we, we brought you on for a reason. Um, so just like things that I'm just like little like nuggets that I just feel like I got to say or something. One one nugget is um, I want to well one thing I just want to say is like I want to get to your like just a little bit of your start because this all you and you're getting to it just kind of like alluding to it but just how how these desires were stoked like that's just a thing I just want to hear a little bit about but um, one thing that I think is interesting is that I, I misspoke when I said this I said this in another episode and I said it incorrectly um, you know one way of thinking about it about us is that we're objects and we're subject to our own objecthood. And so because we're subject to our own objecthood consciously, um, what I think we experience is we are also alienated from our, 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 um, our, ourselves. And therefore everything else is thrown in question. Um, because if you start from the, the premise of being subject to your own objecthood, but you're, you are experiencing a kind of a gulf or gulf alienation. Um, then the, um, sort of the basis or the center of gravity has to be found somewhere. And so we spend most our time, which is what you kind of were getting at and absurdist efforts, futile efforts, trying to find the center of gravity for things. So that means that everything we try to stand on falls apart as the grounds for, for understanding and knowing it, it tends to like, um, it, it means that we default to contradicting ourselves all the time. Um, and so there's, there's just some things I'd love to kick around there just about that, that, that I think are the kind of discussions that are demanding, but not permitted in our culture because they, they push us back to first things. What I mean by first things is like the biggest questions, the most essential discussion prior to whatever cultural milieu we're in in, in any given mm-hmm. moment. Um, one thing I would say about communication of any kind is that um, the, the manner with which we make in, uh, embeds and encapsulates whatever, whatever, you know, whatever we're talking about. So when you're talking about like 
that intersection between uh, subject um, and form creating content. I think that's the way you, mm-hmm. so subject and form creating content, like that's an encapsulation through the embedded means of whatever materiality we're employing. Um, and, and so there is translation and translation does not mean non-truth. Um, it means that truth is uh, elusive beyond the embodied form uh, that is bringing it to bear. Mm-hmm. So in other words, it's always both contained and elusive beyond. So when we talk about art or poetry, um, you know, what I would say, what I always go back to is I will regress backwards and say uh, the nature of the earth, let's just say earth world, kind of like a, a um, Heidegger sort of dualistic um, is that the earth in and of itself is both true and elusive to more. And so when you, this is my postulation. So when you start with that assumption, that means everything you touch or move already is loaded. And, and the crazy thing is you're kind of, we are, you know, when we're, we're, when you're talking about suspended dirt on a canvas, you know, we're suspended dirt on a, on a bone frame. Mm-hmm. So we are, we are talking in the same language as the stuff that we're comprised of. Um, and so we are trying to understand something that that we can't get behind when we try to bring it forward into view for ourselves and others. When we stop trying to understand that, it really goes absurd. It really falls apart. You know, like so for instance, like if I if I were playing like so you 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 said something really that I really appreciated. You were talking about religion that I think is really interesting. You said like, you know, you have your Catholic kind of like I mean I could really geek out on theology, but you had on your left, you have your fundamentalist or your, like your literalist. And, and then you have your, your kind of like Catholic take that, you know, one kind of Catholic take actually is many. Yeah. Um, but so in that picture, it's really interesting because, you know, if you look at that particular text, that book, that book is a compilation of various genre mm-hmm. poetry. I mean, there's erotic literature actually in, in the Bible. Um, uh, Song of Solomon is very erotic. People don't even know that because they moralize the text and they bypass these things. So, like when you start to look at the text, um, then then the question becomes like in a in a, a bodied expression like that. This is going somewhere. Um, is um, is there is there a thorough thorough through, or is it a loose collection? Um, and so when you start looking at an example like that, one of the things like. Put it so. I guess what I'm trying to get at is what's interesting is when we talk about these things, you know, if we say that it's only the metaphor mm-hmm. that matters, we're excluding the physical. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the physical precipi- or, uh, facilitates the precipitation of the metaphor. Exactly. So that's like, so it's difficult to hold on to that without falling into contradiction. So, like, for, so what I would always say is like, or what, what I would, this is going to seem like a curveball, but like, if I send you a text, the text message is brought to bear through the, the means of the phone, right? And all the technology that goes into that. Now, the question is, is the text, vi- the text message that I send you viable? Is it a viable communication? If I say to you, hey, Miguel, come over today. Okay. Mm-hmm. It, it, what, what are the basic requirements to constitute that that's a meaningful communication? You know me. Yeah. I know you. Yep. And that text matters because it's saying something direct that's relevant, right? Now, that communication is scaled to us and scaled to a particular moment. You you with me? Mm -hmm. 
Okay. So um, if the scale of the person changes, the sufficiency of the communication changes with it. So if you're talking about ultimate reality, then it could be both. It could be both literal and, and metaphysical according to the communicator to those that it's communicated. Mm-hmm. The reason why I think that's worth entertaining is because if you were talking about a non-contingent reality, then the text message from that non-contingent reality um, is always operative, predicated on the non, non-contingent reality. And the scale of that non-contingent reality, which is a problematic statement because you might, you'd have to talk in scaleless terms. Um, and so then the means of communication may seem deficient in and of itself, but not if the communicator is, is, is deficient. That means it becomes authorial and intentional or revelatory or whatever. And I, I, I don't know if I'm making sense. I'm, I'm maybe talking very cryptically, but what I'm trying, so what I'm trying to say is, is like that discussion about big stuff, God, not God, all that kind of stuff is really worth sitting on hard past uh, religious pitfalls. Partly because, well, I just think it's worth kicking around, but partly because it frames up our discussions about personal communication through the employing and the means of art making. Mm-hmm. There's something in that discussion that frames up this discussion. Yeah. According to the scale of your capacity, according to the scale of your experience, according to the competency of your understanding of a medium and the implementation of communication through it. Um, what actually are you intending to convey? You know, what's the scope of the conveyance? If I just say, Hey, come over for dinner, the scope of the conveyance is, you know, pretty localized. It's not going to go very far. Um, and I, yeah, I'm totally well, I totally lost you know, it. Yeah. Now I, I, I'm tracking with you. I think the, um, that's a weird, I don't know if you're, yeah. Anyhow, well, when, when, uh, like I've had students ask me things like, how do I, how do I become a good artist? And you're like, how do I answer that question? How do you know? Like, wh- what do you mean? Like, do you, how many years do you have to talk about this? Um, and one thing I always say is like, you, you probably just, you need to know more things. Mm-hmm. And they're like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, what do you like? What do you make? And why do you make it? Right. Like what is underneath that? Right. right? Because there's something behind that layer of facade that you've just put together. And if there's not, that maybe is why it's not resonating with anybody. Like there may be a reason that it's not connecting that isn't just your skill. Right. Right. Because I think that that's one of the things we like to sit back on because skill is something that we can provide a metric for mm-hmm. always. Have you improved? Are you good? Are you bad? Can you do this? Yeah. Those are simple yes, no questions more towards kind of the idea. Like you talked about the, the generations of folks raised on standardized testing. Yeah. Right. It's a, it, it's a standardized testing approach mm-hmm. to education. Yep. So those metrics are there. Now, if we start to talk about like, you know, impact, influence, uh, importance, connection, <laughs> those sort of things, uh, we got no metrics for this. Yeah. We, can, we can't decide that. And whenever we put a metric on it, we've started to already devalue the term altogether. Yeah. And par- so, yeah, partly because of that elusive aspect. Right. And because it's elusive, like you want those things to be there, right? Yeah. I want a world that is understandable and mystical. Like I want those. Yeah. In one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't you know, want one or the other. I want both. Because I want to be able to uh, manipulate my materials in making something, but I also want to not really know what it's going to do for every, per- every person. 
Like I want that in some. Yeah, extent. you want knowledge and mystery. They're not right. dichotomized. They're actually no, entry points. So that's the know. binary that's always problematic. So when I push uh, that back to students about, hey, you should know more stuff. They just look at me like I'm an idiot, or I've got three heads, and they're like, what? Can't, don't you have anything more important to tell me than that? And yeah. it's like, it's like, no, seriously, what you've done is you've come to an art school, and you've dug yourself so deeply entrenched into a single silo that you have no context for the world around that. So when we get to things where I need to ask you, well, what is the bigger? Mm-hmm. You go, uh, I mean, I, I think the shading's good. You know, no, what's yeah. the bigger? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm talking about an experience I had. No, what's the bigger? Yeah. Getting to, okay, communal yeah. experience, combined yeah, yeah, experience, yeah. Yeah. how we understand things, that there are things in the world that are confusing that, you know, those are. Well, it's like, it's like Miguel, it's like you, like I think about the, just like the beautiful picture of you being like, I went swimming and I'm like, that's so funny because like, not funny, but it's like you're immersed just mm-hmm. the way your figures are immersive in fluid reality until it's static, as in painting. And there's such a correspondence of oh, there, feeling in there that. There totally is. I've, yeah. I've, I've thought about that. I mean... Um, and that's, a, that's an admission of something bigger. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Like, so like your self-expression, like I love the picture that you, you said in the film, like that this is the place where they like express themselves the most or you get the most out of them. It's like because there's a, a context that can... Um, reciprocate that or I can receive that contain it and enable it mm-hmm. it's 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 an admission of I'm not the biggest thing yeah you know in, in one sense or another and just in one sense or another you know yeah so, it, sorry to yeah yeah I mean I think yeah again this conversation, this I, conversation. I, have, I have three I have like three yeah. different uh, <laughs> uh, directions thanks a lot Miguel you started it Miguel. I, I know, you I know. totally started it dude uh, to, to all of my friends out there Yes, I am aware of this, and I am sorry. Um, this is why my students tell me that uh, I'm all over the place. I'm like, no, you're just not. You're just not thinking. Yeah, you're just not on the right. You know, yeah. dude. I'm like, I'm listening to three radios at once. Yeah. Like, you got, you got to get on this frequency. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess so. I'm gonna try and hit all three points as concisely. It's called as triadic, I can. triadic thinking. Triadic thinking, yeah. <laughs> so, all right, first point on uh, the kind of biblical literalism. Um, yeah, I will say this. Uh, you know, just so as not to um, misrepresent my family, um, those who I might have uh, some differences with may or may not have. You know, I, I haven't dug deep enough into this. Um, which is again an issue of lack of intimacy with my family's faith practices sure. and yeah, stuff. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm largely basing this off of conversations with my papa, who is a Baptist reverend, and you know, I, I don't think that I, it's fair for me to kind of take his um, experience yeah. and project that onto all members of my family that practice uh, his faith. Um, because I'm disregarding them as individuals. So I just want to put that out there to my family that, like, you know, I do respect that you all are very different people who have come to your faith practices through your own path. And, you know, I just want to put that out there that it would be um, before I felt like I made too broad generalizations, and for that I apologize. Um, to the point about that you were making about students, it reminded me of um, a conversation I had with an artist you both know uh, um, uh, Marissa Stratton, mm-hmm. um, who's way ahead of the game. You know, mm-hmm. she like she posted, Phenomenal. she posted like on Instagram or something. I saw um, like 
like knowledge is not complete until it is lived in the body. And I'm like, where did you come from? <laughs> like, you know, like where, like, how did you get like, all right, yeah. you know, but, but, you know, I was talking with her about grad school mm-hmm. and what comes next after VCU. And I just, uh, shared my own experience. I was like, you have all this technical ability and stuff like that. But, and this isn't just advice for her. This is advice for all my students is, you know, I graduated right into the recession, you know, like (laughs) there was nothing, there was nothing to do, but I was like, okay, Uh, I've had enough of, you know, I can't keep working at the mall. I'm going back to school. And, uh, and it, and I, and I think I went, I think on some levels I was ready for higher education at 15 mm-hmm. and on other levels I needed to be 30 Yeah, depending on what the conversation was. Cause I very much yeah. was guilty of exactly what you described. Mm-hmm. How do I be a great, well, if I work on my shading or if I, yeah. you know, uh, like, you know, I, yeah, I think we're all there. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. it's, oh yeah. And it's, I've done, I've done and said some really dumb crap. I mean, <laughs> like shameful. And I, I got to a point my senior year where, um, my teacher, a uh, uh, really awesome painter, Cat. Uh, she was like um, leaning on me, and she was trying to push me, and she was picking up on these little things in my work that were slipping through the crack, things that had to do with, you know, anxiety surrounding, um, you know, my work at that time, I think there was a lot of anxiety surrounding sexuality mm-hmm. that I just, at like 22 years old, I was just not fucking ready to handle it mm-hmm. it was just bigger than me but I was at this point where you know my teachers they, they kind of started drawing these comparisons of like when I was in grad school when I was in grad school when I was in grad school I wanted to be like you guys still realize I'm still an undergrad mm-hmm. you know and the problem was is the conversation had gotten to a point where um my teachers recognized the ways in which I was advanced and mm-hmm. I appreciate that. And they were trying to push me to the next step, but I just simply had not lived enough yep. in the world to meet them on the level yep. that they wanted. And, you know, so like when I was talking with Marissa, I was saying like, you know, like grad school and everything's great. Like, you know, you should do it, but you should also go out and live mm-hmm. because I'm, I don't want, um, any of my students to have the experience I went through where you kind of get steamrolled mm-hmm. by your faculty because you haven't, you know, it's like you haven't cultivated a strong enough sense of self mm-hmm. and your work hasn't grown through lived experience enough to kind of weather the storm yeah. of all of those critiques and all yeah. of that. Attention. Yeah, I, and I would put it. I would just say like, just like pedantic. Like I would say, or warrant the storm. Yeah, warrant warrant the feedback. Mm-hmm. So the salient press to bring a vision to bear and say, I am coming to you all because I, I'm 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 submitting myself to the process of you all helping me to, um, you know, further realize this incipient vision that I have. Mm-hmm. And so the opposite typically is the case. It be, uh, academia becomes rite of passage. And it becomes tradition, so it becomes assumed as this is what we always do, and then and then you undergo a makeover process. Yeah, 
and so they're completely opposite uh, steps towards something. And one assumes a certain amount of leverage in the individual who's coming to the institution to study and to be studied so that the research work can manifest itself in ways that has uh, uh, extended impact beyond academia. The other is um, I'm finding, I mean, I'm characterizing here, but it's like I'm finding my own, um, uh, like it's like my own American Idol panel mm-hmm. that I'm willing to endure the Simon, the like, it's like, I need the person who's mean to me. I need the person who pats me on the back. I need mm-hmm. the person who cries with me. And what you're doing is you're staging a scenario and then you're, you're submitting to like, I need to go through the, the makeover process and you approve and validate me, stamp me on the back. And now I'm, I'm, I've preemptively been affirmed such that I know that I can do it. And it comes through affirmation externalized to you, which is important, but it isn't coming through the actual means and usage of the material, the work itself. That's that, that actually has affirming, uh, potential. And you take that dynamic you're describing that process of like, I'm going to make you over into Mm -hmm. an artist and you, and you pour on top of that, what we were discussing earlier about the emphasis put on, uh, reference, Mm -hmm. um, the emphasis put on the social and political sphere being the only means of, uh, legitimacy and it's like what happens to that young student's sense of self like mm-hmm. what do you do with um like what room is left in their in their practice for uh their own experience mm-hmm. you know it's it's cruel i think it's really cruel and i think it i think it destroys a lot of um promising young artists before they even get started and um, oh, but and before I forget, uh, so that was points one and two. Uh-huh. Number three <laughs> um, was what you were saying about uh, the submergence, mm-hmm. and yeah, I, I very much do think about that because I think we're always as painters, we're always dealing in embodied metaphor. Mm-hmm. And I found that my last show, I feel like I found in drawing a metaphor to kind of carry over um, my own reflections on a kind of existential state of being um, that was very much born out of grief over mm-hmm. my dad's passing. And um, and it's funny because I leaned into things that I wanted to do 10 years earlier but didn't have the nerve to do it because mm-hmm. I had this, I had an idea in my mind of what a completed drawing looked like. Mm-hmm. You know, well, a completed drawing on toned paper means, you know, you model out the lights and you carve out the shadow and stuff. And it's like, yeah, that, that is the function of toned paper. But then after my dad died, I, I was just like, what if I just, I, I took a drawing and I just erased out all the shadow so that all was left was these light masses suspended in a kind of nebulous space. And then it felt to me like, that's true. Like that's truth. You know, that that's why I call it the show Coalesce, because to me, it was about how who we are, not only our, our mental selves, but even our physical, our embodied physical being in the universe is a function. It is it is a wave that rises and crashes, mm-hmm. you know, and it crash and it rises out of and crashes back not into an abyss, but a field. Mm-hmm. 
and um, and you know I love Baroque painting, but the underlying um, like early Italian Baroque painting, like the Caravaggisti and everything, but the you know that that metaphor of this stark white and stark stark darkness, you can't detach from the feelings of the Counter Reformation. Mm-hmm. You know that they found that's that is a formal structure uh, where they're taking. Um, this primal relationship um, that people in that part of the world have to lightness and darkness, which um, a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. LaRose at uh, VSU, pointed out to me as a metaphor, not shared um, in cultures closer to the equator of this idea of light being good and darkness being bad, Mm -hmm. because, but in Europe and more northern parts of the world, that is that is something it's something that comes out of lived experience mm-hmm. you know darkness is winter darkness is cold darkness mm-hmm. is famine and taking that relationship of um, embodied experience that comes from being of that time of that culture and also being a human organism having a specific existential relationship to that environment and uh um, I guess uh, using that is a cognitive metaphor with which to talk about a spiritual state of being. You know, so light in the painting becomes the light of God. Shadow in the painting becomes the absence of God. And through metaphor, it carries with it the weight of that lived embodied experience. And I love those paintings. I think that they were effective um, you know, tools used during the Counter Reformation mm-hmm. and in the propagating of uh, Catholicism, because they spoke so directly mm-hmm. to people's lived embodied experience. And then you can take that further, and you can add, a, you know, go moving from idealized figures to, um, you know, naturalism. Yeah, yeah. That you know, that's another layer mm-hmm. on which you relate to something different. Like you relate to an, a body that is an idea very differently than a body that is something that looks like you. Yeah. Um and you know but you know I was thinking like I love Baroque painting, but I was thinking, but you know, but that's not my world. Mm-hmm. That's not my worldview. Mm-hmm. That's not my lived experience. And I found in those simple kind of white charcoal drawings, like a metaphor that carries forward mm-hmm. that um, that experience. You know, um, uh, my own experience of, like I said, you know, it's being is not a it's not a it's not a light switch you turn mm-hmm. on and off. It's a, it's a flux. Yeah. And and I've been struggling with, uh, you know, what I what I've been working on is what I I feel like drawing is always ahead of painting is carrying that over into painting. And I think the way it's manifesting itself in painting is that dynamic between the physical and the spiritual, this kind of increased sensitivity to the actual materiality of paint as these, uh, you know, particles Mm -hmm. of dust suspended Mm -hmm. in this translucent medium. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, um, I'm a huge, um, and, you know, and there is something, I guess, to swimming, you know, um, 
both sides of my family are full of swimmers. My dad was an amazing, amazing swimmer. Um, and, uh, you know, and he always talked about swimming as a meditative act. And he could go into this, like, trance state where he could do, like, 60 laps mm-hmm. at, like, one pace. And uh, it's pretty remarkable. But, you know, I, I, I don't know. There's something about floating in that that translucent medium. Maybe, mm-hmm. you know, there, there, is, there is something there. I can't put my finger on it. It's, it's a truth, but it's a, a kind of unspeakable truth yeah, yeah. between, you know, my practice swimming and my practice in the studio. And I, and I guess they're both about, um, they're both also about, uh, I think a studio practice and, and, a, and, a, and an athletic practice are both about patience and endurance and um and you struggle with a lot of the same things you know you kind of have an accomplishment and then you're like can I take it further mm-hmm. can I push a little bit harder this time can I make it a little bit better like you know there's there's also all of that you know they're, they're just such sol- solitary spaces for mm-hmm. self-reflection I was never a team sports kid mm-hmm. you know I needed swimming was what I really took to because I think I was, um, I related to the idea of competing against myself much more than the idea of beating another person. Mm-hmm. Like beating other people was never something, like I never had that hunger, you know, and I didn't like the pettiness of group dynamics. But but I think I, I, swimming, I think, kind of deeply ingrained itself in my personality because you know, the goal for me today is to be a stronger me than I was yesterday, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah. So yeah, those are my three points. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, so something, something that, um, or 50, yeah, 50, 50, 50 points in three, three buckets. Yeah. Um, that, so there's one thing that, um, that you've, you've mentioned a couple of times, selfhood and like, I'm, I'm like thinking about it a lot now and I was like, okay, so what, like I'm, I'm, I'm working with you, and I'm, and one of the things that comes up in my mind that I would like, um, like amend or throw out there is like I just think like a soccer ball to kick in this conversation is, I think of it is like there's a loss of character formation, and so, uh, um, that's being a road like, and I would, I guess I would enjoy that to this idea of selfhood and care. So the like it sounds old, but like character and virtue. And I was thinking about one of our, you know, our team. Chicago art space teams, Sam Taylor, who was Sam, Dan- Sam Bantley and Sam, Sam was one of my students. Sam went through painting and printmaking and Sam went through the philosophy department, double major and just crushed it in both. And she, she's just a work of nature and did independent studies with Sam all the way through. One of the things about Sam that I'm convinced enabled that is that Sam worked in the summer on a farm, just hard, hard work. And so Sam every year made enough money to pay for school. And so what that meant was Sam knew how much Sam understood like sweat, tears, reliability, responsibility. And that deeply anchored Sam to a context, to an environment. And then it created a, um, a transaction of value. So it's like, I know that I'm committing to the, prosperity of this farm and in so doing it's hard redundant repeated work and 
it means something to a multitude of people past myself. And <laughs> it gives me a certain amount of currency that enables me to transfer this experience into an educational environment where my bills are paid. <laughs> and then that work ethic is unleashed onto the responsibility taking of these two subjects that I'm going to parse out my time as well as I can and commit everything I can to because I know how much money I have and I know how much, like it was, it was really interesting. I'd never really had another student who had, had worked that out that way. And, and I think it forged a kind of character, character formation that enables, enables them to up to this moment endure, not just for themselves, but for others. And um, so I'm just putting that there. It's like, I see that missing. So it's not just selfhood. It's like character endurance and formation for the, the both end of uh, us as individuals, but also as, as more than mere individuals in terms of our body collective, if you will. It's the, the, the both end of that dance. Um, and one of the things that was making me think about as you were talking is, um, I actually think we are better when we are embedded in an understanding of ourselves uh, that is localized, like that we understand that we're always localized beings. What I mean by that is wherever you're at is actually where you're at, no matter how much you can like ping someone on the, on the other side of the planet through the internet or some other thing, like, but you are inhabiting the body you're in in the space you're in. And I think we, I think we really, what that means is by acknowledging that, we're also acknowledging our finitude that we're finite contingent beings that come into a, like a flux, like we come into a state and then we exit that state at some point. We expire like that we're, we've been given a set amount of time, you know, like or however you want to say it, like we, we, don't, we don't have much like we. And so so those limitations force us to make decisions, you know, and 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 they drive us to be present in the world that we find ourselves in localized to like the room we're in or the, the family we're in, the and that's why we believe so deeply in the, the influenceability of, of tending to and caring for those environments. In my mind, it's like why you would fix the painting that's hooked crooked on the wall. I can't help myself. When I walk into someone's house, like if their paintings are crooked, you'll see me like tucking them back. I'll go into hospitals, doctor's offices. I'm always like, like I can't help it. And that stuff matters in proportion to what it's doing and what it mm-hmm. is along with everything else. But I can't tend to the totality of the universe. Like I can't tend to the totality of the globe, but um, as a body collective, we can tend to the climate, right? Yeah. And so there's a tension there that that know and be known must be upheld, and we have to concede our limitations so that we might relate to someone else in such a way that that ripple effect of collective is is operative, but not to the detriment of individual character formation and personhood. Well, there's a a great <clears throat> point that. Uh um, again, uh, Dewey makes that, and I have to paraphrase here cause I don't remember, <coughs> excuse me, the exact quote, but it's, it's, uh, something like, uh, if one could understand for, you know, the organism in its environment and then understand like the nervous system inside the organism and then look at the brain operating in relation to that nervous system and then look at you know the cortex in the brain and realize that these are not fixed s- states 
but that they all exist on a continuum. Mm-hmm. You know, so many of our problems would be resolved. And, and I think that the apathy about global warming stems directly from a uh, detachment, not only from our own localized communities, but even a detachment within our own um, bodies. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's we, the alienation that I was talking yeah, about. We are it, our consciousness alienated from this body, and we, yeah. we almost despise it. We're like, I don't want to be here. Yeah, and you're like, you're. I think we're missing our and fundamental. We can, yeah, and then you know, you can get on, you can blow your evening on Facebook, mm-hmm. and it serves as a form of escapism to make you forget. And I've never done that, that body. Miguel. I'm going to be honest. I've never. I've never blown any time on social media. I'm so yeah, yeah. so above that. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh man, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it, and the thing is, is like I think that when you know, if if folks listening have heard us talk about this idea of like like art that humanizes, that may sound somewhat pastoral, right? Where it's like, oh, isn't that isn't that cute? Humanizing art, but I think it's it, it's like, but we start to talk about art that provides an escape back into the reality of the world from the false narrative that is built around us through our mediated experiences. Beautiful with each other. way to put it. And I, I think that's the escapist art. Like if we're kind of going back to this question of like, well, well why is it important? What next? What now? Yeah. I think it's like, we need to form pathways for people to escape back into the world that is here. Yeah, that's like our biggest, which yeah, absolutely, man. Just from the other day, pop it into your studio, uh, Miguel. Like I, I'm very much an internal processor. So I sit quietly for a long time and then I speak. And so your studio has just been sitting in little pockets of my brain for the last few days. Um, and the things that kind of floored me about it is I always love seeing the actual spaces. I love seeing the residue of the work that people do. I was telling Ryan this after we left. I was like, I just like that. So I like studio visits because I can see like small vignettes of like the way that paint has dried on a palette the way that paint has fallen onto a floor, the way that a sheet sits where a model might have sit, sat before. Those things are amazing to me because they point me to a real world, to an experiential, like an embodied experiment, experience that has happened in a place that only happened because of individuals that were there um, working towards a thing. And, you know, I think it's amazing because your the vignettes of your work, the way that they hit me, that they were so, they were so personal, the way that these uh, figures that you're painting were taking up the space of the canvas. Um, they were experiences that I had had several times before, but provided a non-sentimental, realistic tether to those experiences in my own life, where it's like I remember holding that baby. I remember being in the space. I remember my my wife, my friend, my family, whatever. And, and, and such like an internal like luminance that was just like, in the paintwork of the layering. Like there were things that just like hit in such a way and it didn't send me somewhere else. It sent me further into here when I saw that work. And it was the thing I think like, you know, leaving with like a gratefulness for seeing it, uh, seeing your work in that way. It's just like, you know, it's a nice because oftentimes the work that I see from students or people I'm, I'm helping in their career or whatever else it is, like the work I see, it doesn't always do that. Mm-hmm. And that produces like, like a longing in a in a way that leads to like restlessness and resentment, mm-hmm. you know. And instead, I want that longing that says like the longing like somebody like John Muir may have had for like going out into the wilderness, right? It wasn't to necessarily get away from the world, but it was to find it. 
Mm -hmm. right? It was to find those spaces where communion actually could happen in real ways with the things that are, because we were moving away from all of the distraction that we Mm -hmm. most of the time intentionally build up around us. Mm -hmm. Um, And so those, those are things that I think are really important. And I just like the idea of humanizing art through escapes back into the world that we've kind of built technology around us to ignore. Yeah, cool. Because I, because so. Thanks, um, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, dude. Like, I, I really appreciate that because that's what I'm, I'm trying to do. Like, you know, it's weird because I feel like back in New York, there's a, a, a much more robust community of figurative artists in Richmond. I kind of stick out like a sore thumb and people look at my work with like suspicion. You know, I get comments like, I don't trust the hand and your work is full of the hand. And like, (laughs) I don't even understand that. I'm like, whatever, man, (laughs) like whatever. Um, I mean, I, I can, I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm very sympathetic. I, I, when I hear stuff like that, even if it's a passive aggressive jab at me, I can sympathize with where the person's coming from. Sure. Thing is, I don't trust the hand either, but if you think my work is about expression of technical ability, then I can't, that criticism doesn't hurt me because that criticism has nothing to do with what I'm doing. Yeah. yeah, It has everything to do with the prejudice you bring to the table. Typically that prejudice is actually academically bestowed and not earned. Exactly. like, Like I can tell when someone actually has fought with painting and mm-hmm. landed landed in like one of many categories. Like you can tell the difference between someone who's kind of like, like I make abstract. My work is abstract for a reason. Mm-hmm. I've fought with painting, and when you fight a good foe, you end up respecting him yeah. more than anything else. So like I I I'm not. I don't know how to explain it. Like I'm not. Um, that's why I have such a wide um, love for paint. Yeah. Uh, for me personally, so. Um, well, one of the things that, I mean, because one of the things that your work, I was like, you know, the thing with the work is it it's not exploiting the figure, not exploiting it. That's the thing is like, that's what I think you're getting at, Gareth. The work isn't, um, especially when you see it in total, like um, it doesn't, ex- it, the figure is not being exploited in order to promote the artist. In other words, it's not a means towards propping you and your skill or whatever. Like that's the quick, like I don't trust the hand. Is not that so? So then it's like there actually is a direction to the work and um, a quietness. Uh, uh, you know, we we've said it a lot, but there is like an an an, in, an intimacy or a an anchoring kind of aspiration. And where I was headed was there's a difference between escape and imaginativity. Mm. Actually, like what is our imagination? And the imagination gets a lot like. Imagination's been on, like it's like an enclave, or it's been cul-de-sacked into things like Disney. Mm-hmm. It's like so we think that's imagination, but it's like no, no, no. Imagination is like you got in the car today and you use it to get here. You use your yeah. imagination. So what I what I like almost want to recapture in art discussions is what imagination is and the role that it plays because it's often confused with escape. Mm-hmm. Well, does, I mean, does that, yeah. yeah, totally. Because um, imagination is the first step to empathy, right? And I've seen that play out on so many different levels. Mm -hmm. You know, um, even some of, like, the most staunch, like, super conservative, I hate liberals, you're all a bunch, you know, people I know who kind of are just, like, totally lack any 
empathy Mm -hmm. for what's happening with like the Black Lives Matter movement and Mm -hmm. why people are upset and everything like that and everything Mm -hmm. will at other times admit to there being um, uh, lacking Mm -hmm. in their imagination. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, don't, don't you think that there's something there? And And you know what? I will even go to say that this isn't just a this is a an American problem, not yeah. just a conservative problem. It's like, don't you think that your lack of imagination? Don't you think that the fact that your kid grew up looking at a screen and not playing with other kids, and don't you think that the fact that you know you spend more time watching the twenty four hour news cycle than you do talking to your neighbors might have something to do with your inability to sympathize mm-hmm. with where uh, those you disagree with are coming from. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, and I get this whole, like, why the figure? And, oh, the figure's so played out and blah, blah, blah. And, like, oh, like, seen it, you know. And I'm just, like, it's, I'm, like, just, like, go to hell. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I am a corporeal being. Like, maybe I, you know, maybe I didn't read the right art theory, but last I checked, none of us have transcended our bodily form. Yeah. The last time I checked, like I'm flesh and blood and bone and so are you. And that's where we meet. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's with this sort of revival of figurative art, um, which has not really happened in Richmond yet, you know, you kind of see more of it and, kind of bigger art centers like, you know, New York and LA and everything like that. But there's two things going, there's multiple things going on that I think kind of get thrown together in the same way. A lot of artists within that can't draw distinct, don't understand the difference between cubism, abstract expressionism and (laughs) postmodernism going the other way. I hate being lopped in with, uh, these sort of 19th century revivalist, Mm -hmm you know, and these, uh, this sort of rising conservatism in, uh, the atelier movement and everything. Mm -hmm. I'm like, that, that's not me. Yeah. That doesn't have anything. I didn't, yeah, I didn't learn to paint by formula. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't, you know, um, I, I do think there's a lot of useful skill that is being taught in that training, but there is the, but then there's the fetishization of skill, which is extremely problematic. And, um, I actually consider myself, uh, and this was, um, I don't need to go into talking about uh, New York Academy at length, but I will say one of the benefits of going to school there um, was that it put me in touch with other artists who were interested in the figure, but not interested in that more kind of structured atelier mm-hmm. system. And what I found is uh, through painters, um, I encourage people to look up like um, Aaliyah Chapin, Lauren Redding, Karis Carmichael, Michelle Dahl, um, and countless other artists who went through New York Academy of Art who are now kind of spread throughout the country. You know, I consider them to be sort of like uh, working in a subgenre of figurative painting that is strongly emphasizing um humanism like mm-hmm. my and uh and brett harvey uh too he's a sculptor and my uh, my friend lauren and i have uh you know she's uh was in queens now she's in naples florida you know she's 
has uh, Cuban ancestry, and she's using this kind of classical training and love of the materials and stuff of Italian Renaissance art using like silver point mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But she's doing work about the immigrant experience of uh, Cuban women. And it's beautiful and it's moving. And now she's getting trippy because she's she sort of brought in her interest in space exploration mm-hmm. and then realized, like, what does space explore? And she realized the common theme between, you know, the story of her grandmother coming from Cuba to Florida and, you know, and astronauts going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so she's done these self portraits and like portraits of women and these spacesuits and stuff because it kind of speaks to that, like, you know, going to a foreign place. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, uh, you know, and, but these other artists, and I, and I, I honestly, I don't want to like, you guys should just, everybody should just go look up, like, you know, some of these artists I just mentioned, because I could talk at great length about the merits of all their work. Um, but for one thing, I noticed, like, it's a lot of really, really great women painters who are mm-hmm. doing, who are approaching figurative painting like mm-hmm. this. And it's like, but it has to do with everything we talk about. It has to do with um, embodiment. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I feel like after this discussion, if somebody, it's like, if, if you have been listening to this, um, whoever you are out there, by now, uh, the answer to the question why the human figure should be evident. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, and I'm really excited about seeing where this goes, um, seeing if the kind of work we're doing, you know, kind of rises to being a part of a broader consciousness. And, you know, and I also want to see that this kind of work in dialogue with other facets of painting and art in general. Um, well, so something real fast that I'm, you're, you know, I'm just thinking about, like we mentioned like somewhere in there, like a kind of transcendent, you had talked about like the idea of getting deep down to bring out something that is more universal. Yeah. And I think that's really falls deaf on people. So I'm, I'm going to say, I just want to say it in a really dumb, like just dumb, obvious way, like very literalistic way. Clouds, are transcendent as we like what I mean by that is clouds just clouds happen whether we want them to or not to a large extent not talking about you know our influence on on the climate but what I mean by that is like I mean so because those experiences are always coming into view there's always going to be emerging generations of people that are as equally compelled by that as somebody 200 years ago because it's compelling. The landscape will always be yeah. transcendently so. I, I would call it I would call it um I was joking yesterday and telling my students we're you know we're 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 actually on a spacecraft on a rock going Mach 80 being <laughs> hurled through outer space, you know, spinning at you know uh, a certain rate or whatever. Like it's kind of ridiculous when you think about it that way. But so like there's all these things that are I would call them lowercase transcendent. Meaning, like, they're not directly one-to-one contingent upon you or I. They could be contingent upon us as human beings over thousands of years. But 
or millions of years, but, um, but they persist, you know? So like certain things seem to keep persisting until they don't. And so what happens is we will, we will want to make sense of the meaningful experiences we're having by making more meaningful experiences out of those. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's so part and parcel to what we are. And so included in that is <laughs> humans. Like, like, so like the idea that we would ever tire of it, um, we don't even understand ourselves that well and look at all the information we have and we're still kind of mystified. Like, like it's like, uh, the recent studies that are coming out on the relationship to the gut and the mind mm-hmm. and, um, you know, and like Alzheimer's for instance, like, like that poor diet in the gut possibly, it, uh, has a, uh, contribution in, in, uh, Alzheimer research in, which is scary for me cause I have terrible gut problems. Um, but I mean, like we, that, that's the thing I think Gareth was even alluding to is like what we know, uh, you know, is like the launch pad into unknown. That's the whole, that's the paradox of knowledge. It's a philosopher's circle. It's like the more, you know, the less, you know, well, the more, you know, the more conscious you are of what you don't know that is still yet to be disclosed or understood. Mm-hmm. And so you can't exhaust things like the figure you can, you can't, you can have true. Now this is, you can have true and contingent knowledge but not exhaustive knowledge. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I had said, I, you know, a long time ago, I've mentioned it here before, like I had David Reed in my studio once and the way he talked about painting, I was like, it's like he talked about painting like a dance partner. And it's like, I love that because there was that rhythm of like the coming together of these uh, commingling of these two uh, participants for a, um, a suspended amount of time. And the dance partner, uh, partners break up but the but the dance is always still available for the next one who wants to like you 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 never until we don't exist people will paint until we don't exist uh uh or you know people like until that point people will stop painting but up to that point like we will always paint yeah we will always paint figure and it won't be a redundancy to the negation of um meaningful experience mm-hmm. and it's only when we get apathetic and elitist that we impose an impatient uh, standard on 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 such things. So I think the challenge in in my mind for for where you're at is to not succumb to overreacting to false criticisms, so that the work is galvanized by. And I'm not saying this is you specifically, but but it's like because it's an axiom, it's self evident. You don't even have to deal with that criticism because that that wastes time. Uh, investigating the mystery in front of you. Well, I don't know if you guys saw, but on my uh, studio wall, I had the words, do it anyways, written, which was what my uh, advice from my therapist. And, uh, you know, because at the end of the day, I got to make the painting I want to make. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and I always think about, um, you know, uh, Rilke's letters to a young poet. And this idea of, you know, cultivating like a productive solitude, um, giving yourself broad enough space to let your imagination live and, um, and to respect the fact uh, that others also need that space, that that's a part of being human. Um, you know, he says like, you know, two lovers should be uh, act as centuries to one another's solitude. Um, 
not only in you know so it, it's true of romantic love it's but it's also true i think of one's relationship to one's uh studio practice and yeah you can't um like I realized I was in grad school, I was like at a certain point, my first year of grad school, I was like, I'm never going to survive this if I, if I keep bringing people into the studio with me, you know? And I was like, when I come into the studio, I am beholden to no one, which is sort of a, was in direct opposition to, uh, the kind of referential training that comes out of the more kind of postmodern school of thought in which you're beholden to everyone. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I have to shed that weight and allow myself to be fully human. Um, I think a lot about, uh, there's a great book by um, Czech author Milan Kundera. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it's like his real famous book is Unbearable Lightness of Being. And I read that, loved it, read a bunch of his novels. But then I read his book, The Art of the Novel, where he basically just describes his writing process and what he thinks a novel is historically and what a novel is in relation to the human condition. And, you know, I've kind of adopted his definitions. You know, he sees that the, the production of art is being a mode of exploring various facets of the human condition, nothing more, nothing less. It need not be a declaration, but it can be. Mm -hmm. You know, it need not be like some sort of political statement. Yes, it can make historical reference, or it cannot, but at the end of the day, um, you know, like art, not all art is advocacy. Mm -hmm. You know, there is something to be said for... Um, exploring even the aspects of ourselves that we find to be most disagreeable. Um, and there, there is great healing and great liberation in that. I'm thinking of a classmate of mine who did a painting in grad school of the Ku Klux Klan. And it was based on her own personal memory of witnessing and being horrified by a Klan rally when she was... Um, uh, young girl um, and I was so disgusted with how juvenile people's reactions were to it that they treated it as if she was somehow advocating mm -hmm. for the Ku Klux Klan right and she was she was made to like defend herself <laughs> before the the, the school on the whole, for doing this painting. Because, like, you know, it's kind of like, well, you know, who are you as a white woman from the South to deal with this subject matter and blah, blah, blah and everything? And it's like, God damn it, she's, she's painting from her lived experience. Mm -hmm. That was her life. And you're saying it's not valid because of her demographic? Mm -hmm. Or that saying just because she's willing to look this hideous thing in the face... Mm -hmm. Um, that she is somehow advocating for it. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely ludicrous. It's the shallowing. I mean, you can say, I feel like, I don't, I don't know if people, you, I mean, I feel like it's important that you're saying, even that you're saying that in our current moment, being exactly who you are saying that, like, and I would just echo that and say that, like, that's the thing, man, is like, we are, it's so politicized to a thin veneer that the, um, 
I mean, we're, we're, I mean, we are doing, we're going to do the cliche thing. Like we're, we're prone to repeat history because we're just so ignorant to um, the depth and complexity and, and messiness of these things and what it means to convey, talk about, communicate, stare it down. Like it's just absent. It's just, um, and it's being eviscerated. It's hor- It's really terrifying, you know? Um, yeah. Well, I, think, so I, mean, this, I, I think that's echoed in so many ways. I mean, at, I'm sure y'all have read the, the countless articles about everyone who is utterly pissed off at what the National Gallery did with the Philip Gustin retrospective. Ex- yep. Exactly yeah, where my mind went. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like you up. can't you can't not bring that up in the conversation because it's it's uh, you you invalidate an entire career with a with a curatorial choice. Yeah, and that curatorial choice is well, we have to we have to spend three or four more years figuring out how to tell you people how you can actually look at the art, which is an in- incredible thought that it that is. quickly we've lost the ability to understand that Philip Gustin was not, it was not about this stuff was not glorifying. The no. Land. Yeah. It's what I've, the, my interpretation of all those paintings was that he was showing the depth at which this assumed white supremacy had infiltrated every aspect of ordinary American yeah. life. I mean, if anything, I think he was, I think those paintings speak to systemic racism before anybody was throwing around the word 100%, systemic 100%, racism, hundred percent, you yeah. know, and it's like, mm-hmm. but we're, and it's like, I mean, and Gustin himself, what I also love about those, his late paintings was how, how self-critical he is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that, you know, there's, there's a certain kind of, um, uh, I, I love the, the, I love some of his late self-portraits you know, which are almost kind of pathetic caricatures mm-hmm. of an aging artist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he himself, you know, late in life spoke about, you know, Gustin was a name he adopted to hide his Jewish heritage. I mean, he had witnessed uh, in his youth Klan rallies, and it terrified him. Yeah. Like, he is, he is somebody who was directly made to live in fear by the Ku Klux Klan, mm-hmm. by white supremacy, yep, and we have become so fucking juvenile and stupid that we assume that just because he's depicting, you know, it just drives me crazy. Yeah. It's like he looks white, so he must be sympathetic. Yeah, it's like I don't know. I'm just I'm so over this crap. Uh, it's like we're never gonna get through the complexities of the problem of racism. Because it's it's all just posturing. Mm-hmm. It's all just. I mean, do curators do anything anymore but worry about what other people are going to think of them? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, do we even need them? Like, it's it's so stupid. Mm-hmm. You know, it's somebody might not get it. It's like, okay, oh, so what? That doesn't mean that doesn't make it wrong mm-hmm. to show the work. And you know what? Someone who might come at it the wrong way. Maybe they'll dig a little deeper, learn a little bit more about Philip Gustin, and come around to seeing that, oh, what he is addressing in this painting is multifaceted. Yes, it's it's sort of ironic because it's like, since when did we start caring about whether people got it right away? The whole point was the elusive nature of it is such that you'll probably have to come back to it. You will have to be changed. Like, there will be, there is something to muse. There is... An ex, a rate of exchange that's not instantaneous, and because because you can't microwave meaning, 
Um, <laughs> I mean, you can, you can microwave a meal and that means something, but you know what I mean? Like most things yeah. that are substantive just don't transact that way. Mm-hmm. And, and like literally, uh, idiocracy is imposing itself on everything, including Philip Gustin. I'm like, we were, we were, we were headed to the show and then we, we got been on the, the radar for like nine months. Yeah. And so we were like, we were ready to do it. Um, and I, I just want to point out, I mean, like if your own background is your mother is if it's okay yeah. to say like your mother is my mom's black yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so i mean you've been you've been I, living I, through this in the south in richmond yeah and i grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood um spent my early childhood pretty much kind of in black richmond and then sort of moved back and forth um once my dad came into my life and you know and being kind of biracial um, it's funny, people have such naive concepts of what a biracial identity is. It's like, I feel like it's, I feel like it's been lost on people to even acknowledge that. Oh yeah. I'm totally, totally the rhetoric, the rhetoric that I hear on all sides of the political spectrum, uh, right now has been so incredibly alienating people. People speak as if people like myself, uh, can't exist. Yeah. But the thing is people, on the one hand, people have always spoken that way. Like, to anyone who is limited in their imagination, uh, an existence like mine is abhorrent. You know, it's it's a contradiction. Um, I, I offend so many people just by being. Mm. And um, which, I mean, the negative consequences of that is I go into every new social engagement um, kind of already strategizing uh for conflict strategizing for uh battle which is something my mom says i inherited from my father um and uh it's uh yeah i mean i used to tell people in new york i was like didn't i was like yeah i grew up in richmond but i feel like surviving richmond Mm. is a more accurate description of like somehow i didn't let this place corrode and break my identity and you know thankfully that's largely in due to having a um family that was willing to grow mm-hmm. and and by that i mean both sides of my family mm-hmm. you know um people kind of project these narratives on me that you must have gotten this from your father and you must have gotten this from your mother and it always amazes me how wildly inaccurate mm-hmm. people usually are Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, yeah, this is where I'm like trying hard not to drop names, <laughs> um, you know, and blow up anybody, you know, like, but it's just, it's so, so, uh, deeply frustrating. Like my only goal by high school, I was just like, my goal is just to get the hell out of Richmond. Did you see art as a vehicle to do that? Like, was that? Was painting a driver for that? Not, I mean, not not to not to pigeonhole you to yeah, like a past. Not you know. not consciously. I don't think it was consciously. Uh, I think um, I think when I was a teenager, there were so, there are so many dynamics at hand that I couldn't process at all. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like a lot of things that happened to me in my adolescence. Um, I'm just now starting to understand. Mm-hmm. And um, and when 
I'll tell you what, what triggered, what really got me into painting was, you know, when I was younger, I thought maybe I'd be an illustrator, you know. Um, but then around eighth grade, I went through a profoundly, like, deep depression, like life-altering depression. Um, and in that, uh, I discovered, you know, my dad bought me two albums, uh, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, and uh, Radiohead, OK Computer. And, uh, I've painted to that album more than I care to admit. <laughs> yeah, oh, I mean, it's yeah, a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece. And, but I found that in this music, and then I went deeper into the catalog of these bands, and, you know, I got to The Wall, and Roger Waters, this sort of semi-autobiographical, semi-fictitious kind of narrative he constructed about um, alienation from the world, the first half of the album being the forces in his life that imposed this um, detachment from everyone around him and um, including himself, you know, until you get to the song in the second half, Comfortably Numb, in which, you know, the alienation is now within himself. And the way the album goes from, like, an external space to an internal psychological space where if, you know, if you watch the film, you know, the first half of the movie is like, this is the real world. Mm -hmm. The second half of the movie where it gets all into it, it's like, this is, this is in his mind is he's like overdosing mm -hmm. in this hotel room after destroying his marriage, mm -hmm. you know? And, but then, you know, at the end he's, you know, he, goes on trial and this trial is happening in an, an internal space this self-evaluation and then it ends with the song like um you know like i can't remember the lyrics exactly but something to the effect of like you know all in all or in twos like the ones that really love you like you know something something like outside the wall you know there's this opt you know uh you know sort of saying like outside of the wall, like the bleeding hearts and the artists make their stand, you know, that, and that, and I was just like, and I listened to that album and I listened to it over and over and over and over. And it kind of gave me a roadmap from how to climb out of this depression mm -hmm. and that art could be the vehicle. Like, you know, I wanted to get outside of the wall. Mm -hmm. I wanted to, you know, like Roger Waters, like I wanted to, you know, I was going to put myself through this trial and I was going to face and, um, and, and it's through self-expression. Mm -hmm. You know, the album itself was an act of self-healing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's almost kind of like this uh, meta thing yeah. going yeah, yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. And so I went to my dad's studio and I did a painting that sort of told, and I wish I still had it, but, you know, it crudely uh, was a kind of an illustration of the entire cycle of depression I had mm -hmm. gone through. And after I finished painting it, it was like the depression was gone. Mm -hmm. It was just, and I felt this joy and sense of well-being. It's kind of like, I always think of somebody taking their foot off the dampener on mm -hmm. a piano. Suddenly the resonance of things just... And I knew in that moment, I was eighth grade, 14 years old, I was like, I'm a painter. Mm -hmm. 
like I was like I knew right then and there like if I don't do this like I will die mm-hmm. like who I am um depends so much on this ability to get these things out so mm-hmm. from there it became a uh, a calling and then I I went to like Appomattox Governor's School um down in Petersburg which at the time was like a kind of a brand new art school mm-hmm. and um and that was really great because everybody was from all over the place. Mm-hmm. You know, we had like county kids, we had city kids, we had country kids and stuff. But we were all kind of like the island of misfit toys. Mm-hmm. And we were too young and it was too early. Um, we didn't have like kids do today the kind of tribalism. Yeah. You know, it was more kind of like, you know, the kind of preppy theater kids versus like, you know, the more like punk rock Mm -hmm. art kids and stuff like that. But it wasn't the kind of um, entrenchment and uh, the sort of identity politics that I see in my students today, which I think is so much more damaging Mm -hmm. to relationships. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And then, but by the end of high school, um, you know, my friends were, you know, fucking doing coke and, all strung out and everything. And my dad's long period of sobriety uh, had ended and he was doing hard drugs again. Mm-hmm. And um, and at 18, I was just like, there's nothing for me here. I got to get out. And that's mm-hmm. so I went, I went to University of Hartford uh, to study with this painter, Stephen Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, met all, all, all these amazing painters, Jeremiah Patterson, um, it's a watercolorist who taught me a lot. Uh, Fred Wessel, he's an egg tempera painter. And uh, Fred and Stephen, Stephen worked in a lot of layers. Mm-hmm. And I should also add that going to Hartford was something that was sort of encouraged by a painter, um, Mark Pahanek, mm-hmm. um, who he's, a, he's uh, um, based down in Petersburg. He and Stephen had both studied together at Brooklyn College under Leonard Anderson, who isn't an extremely well-known painter, but for people who do or who are really into observational painting, he's kind of like a painter's painter. Mm. And, um, and you know, Panic looked at my work in high school and how I was painting, and he was like, I know who you need to study with. Mm-hmm. So my dad and I went on this road trip, and we visited all these schools I had gotten up into up and down the 95 corridor. Uh-huh. And Hartford was just like, this is it. Yeah. You know, this is where I'm supposed to be. And, and, you know, and I stayed on another year, did a residency where I was teaching um, art lessons to a bunch of disrespectful little kids in the neighborhood. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I made bonds with my buddy Kyle and this guy Greg, uh, who's a really awesome photographer, Greg Russell, and uh, Kyle Phillips, this painter. And I started building these relationships. And, and Hartford had a cool community. Like, you know, they had a really good jazz school, the Hart School of Music. So mm. there's always great live music. And it kind of gave me a – and I was homeless and broke, and I didn't have enough money to come back to Virginia. I think I had, like – I got to where I couldn't stay on my friend's couch anymore, and I only had $6 I was like, $6 isn't going to get me back to home. So my uh, philosophy professors, uh, Dr. Moen and uh, Dr. Barnes, um, became like kind of like almost like surrogate parents. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then it was living with them. They didn't have a TV. It was, so it was all books. 
and NPR. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I was never happier. And it, and it was in that year that I, uh, I think I fully became me, mm. you know, from 22 to 23, um, which I have to say is I was probably also the biggest asshole I've been my entire life. Uh, to, the, to the women in my life at that time, I am sorry. Um, yeah, I was a fucking dick, but, but I was growing. Yeah. And I was dealing with a lot, and um, yeah, it was you know all philosophy. Um, he was also a big classical music buff. I, I was introduced to Maurice Ravel, and uh, Ravel for me was just this. Um, at first, I didn't like it. You know, at first, I was like, "This is so d- discordant and choppy," and. You know, the keys keep shifting and everything. It was really challenging. But I remember this experience I had with Radiohead when Kid A came out. I hated Kid A at first because mm-hmm. I wanted more okay computer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then I just, but I was like, no. I was like, I trust these guys. Yeah. Like, I trust That's them. so key. So I just kept listening to it and listening to it and listening to it. And then one day, it just hit me. Yep. And now I think Kid A, Kid A is like an unparalleled masterpiece. Yeah. But the same, so I took that and I carried it over to classical music. Yeah. So, you know, I kept listening and, uh, and I always feel like now I want my paintings to feel the way Ravel's music feel. Mm. And, my, mm. you know, and it's interesting that my favorite rock bands, my favorite composers are so often people that I found very challenging. And Not immediately palatable. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and, I, and, I, and that's been very informative but that's sure. sort of you know and then I moved to New York and I went to grad school and that was great um and shitty and uh and uh, I stayed in I think the more important thing I did at New York in New York I mean was building relationships mm-hmm. in grad school um and I got a phenomenal um education from some really good artists and then that education continued I worked in Soho um, art materials, mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, we had everybody from like John Curran and, um, Kondo and like, you know, all the way down to like little old ladies doing their Sunday painting. And, yeah. uh, and I think having New York kind of just fall on my lap. Yeah. Kind of broadened my horizons. Did you ever ask uh, John Curran why all his paintings look like him? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm nah, just kidding. <laughs> nah. With with John Curran, he always came in, and it was always just like, you know, why can't I find? You know, it was, it was like lead white and uh, sable brushes, uh-huh. and why the hell can't I find any sable brushes? You know, that that was that was the <laughs> only conversation we had. Yeah, but um, how did your how did your um, you know, because if you look at like your dad's work and your work, they're very different. Yeah. So was that it? Because I, I, I could almost, so I'm, I'm listening to your story. And I'm like, I could almost imagine it not being an inf- like not being a direct influence. Like in some ways, I feel like the way you're talking about your practice and the way you make and just your journey towards it. Obviously, like like pot, dad gave you the albums, or but like it almost feels like a very independent. Um, yes and yes and no. I think um, I think that the things my dad and I share, we share on an almost. Um, you know, it's 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 biological. Yeah. It's spiritual. Yeah. It's um. It's never anything like you know. My dad and I, when we talked about art, 
you know, we kind of, we almost spoke as peers. Mm-hmm. You know, there wasn't, um, he didn't, he never positioned himself. And his big fear, my dad was so afraid of having undue influence on the direction I took my life. Mm-hmm. And um, so he tried to stand back. But um, maybe that's what I feel like I'm perceiving in the way you're talking is that there wasn't like an imposition. Yeah. Per se. Maybe that's what it is that I feel like I'm sensing but in, I think, in the discussion. I think where we overlap is in that undercurrent of um, metaphor. Mm-hmm. Um, the layering, mm-hmm. uh, the respect to the materiality mm-hmm. of painting. Yeah. One thing, um, a friend of mine, my, my dad was having a solo show at OK Harris in New York while I was in grad school. And the gallery is only three blocks, three or four blocks away from New York Academy. So, mm-hmm. you know, I got a bunch of my grad school buddies and I was like, hey, guys, let's go see my dad's show. And, uh, you know, and. Uh, my friend uh, Adam Lamoth, he goes, everyone says you and your dad are so different. He goes, but you guys paint with the exact same palette. And then I was like, oh, shit. Like, you're right. Like, our colors mm, are so really similar, yeah. even though, you know, I'm using, like, Canada balsam and doing these very thin layers. And my dad's using, like, cold wax and then scraping mm-hmm. it back. But there's, I think, one thing my father and I shared is, um, and you put it eloquently earlier, is this sort of depositing of history, mm-hmm. that layering of experience. I think my dad found it, that metaphor through witnessing the urban decay mm-hmm. of Richmond. Mm-hmm. You know, looking at this a house that's been painted and repainted yep. and repainted, and each one of those layers kind of embodying like a lived time. Yep. And, you know, my dad's work, I think the earlier abstract works, um, the scraping and texture and everything, I think was more uh, explicitly kind of architectural. And then around 2005, um, it's like there was this like transfer where Mm. it stopped. It started feeling more like flesh, Mm -hmm. started feeling more like meat. And it went from being you know, layered paint to layered skin. Mm-hmm. And there is this, uh, this woundedness and vulnerability came into the work that, um, I found was, and you know, now that I look back it, that coincided with him beginning to lose the battle mm-hmm. with substance abuse. Interesting. And I think when he was losing himself to the ad- addiction, he needed to preserve more of himself in the artwork. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it sort of like the artwork became increasingly, if you look at the trajectory of my dad's work, um, it be- became increasingly a place for him to sort of deposit his biography mm-hmm. as he was becoming less and less and less um, the person mm-hmm. he once was. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it, yeah, it was just painting as an act of self-preservation. And... Um, yeah, and I guess none of this was conscious, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but I always remember something my dad said to me. We were in his studio, and he was just like, you know, they have it all wrong. Like them being the establishment, the gallery, the, yeah. the VCU, the abstract, yeah. them that artists are always complaining about. He's like, they got it all wrong. They think this is a job. This isn't a job. This is a priesthood. And I understood exactly what my dad meant by that. And, and I think that's, that's the level mm-hmm. where 
we met. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, case in point, like those paintings I was talking about, those really vulnerable paintings, you know, he lost a lot of support. Um, it's funny, in Boston and New York, people thought they were great. In mm-hmm. Richmond, his friends were telling him he needed to go back to doing what he used to do. You know, I think Richmond wanted my dad to play it safe. Yeah. You know, they so wanted... Classic. Yeah, they wanted like you know, Bill, go back to those, go back to those paintings that, that, that work with the furniture. Yeah, you know, like quit writing about your, you know, enough of this alcoholism and mm-hmm. you know and like, you know, and stuff like that. You know, just do nice geometric abstraction. Mm-hmm. You know, and my dad just wouldn't have it. Yeah, he wouldn't have it. Um, you know, there was only one way, and that was forward. And uh, but I remember my dad and I. We're moving out of my childhood home, which was extremely traumatic, and he was being a real prick. I was being a real prick because I couldn't handle everything that was going on, too much change. We're fighting like a couple of idiots, and then we get to the show, and like, I mean, we were both like livid, angry, and then then I walk into his show, and I had to say, damn, damn, these are some good paintings, (laughs) like, you know, and it just like... (laughs) And the fighting had to stop, like, and I think painting kind of, given the turbulence of our relationship, us being, you know, I feel like my dad's the best friend I ever had and the best friend I will ever have. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, like, you know, my dad and I, we we came to blows, Mm -hmm. you know, there's times where we were literally like trying to beat the shit out of each other. Mm. And... And I'm, you know, and nothing pains me more in my life than those memories. Mm. But, you know, we'd walk into, uh, like, the National Gallery or something, and we'd both be able to meet. Maybe, again, that's that, that painting kind of existing is that, that common mm-hmm. ground. Like, despite how fucked up we were, and we both were, and... um suffering our own flavors of mental illness and narcissism and self-absorption. But we could both, you know, look at a painting and be like, you know, damn, that's a good painting. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, I I believe in painting because, and believe in in this, like these conversations we're having and stuff, um, not out of some sort of like theoretical you know, um, external validation. Um, you know, I know in my own life that art saves people and that art saves relationships and that art can cultivate humanity. And, you know, like, I love what you said. Like, I'm just, I'm going to keep thinking about that, um, you know, escaping back to reality, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, we, we need that more than ever. And please, please cut this down. Like, I've been, like, rambling way too much. Like, you probably won't do it. Uh, <laughs> You'll probably oh, let it ride. Yeah. I, if I, when, that's one thing I hate about teaching is I hear myself talking too much. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, fuck this. Just shut It's like, you know, but, but I'm so scared the kids aren't going to get it that I got to keep going and keep going and keep going. Like, you got to get it. You got to get it. You got to get it. And, and then... But there's a voice in my head that's just like, oh, my God, Miguel, you're boring yourself. You're boring yourself to tears. Like, 
Well, I think one great <laughs> thing about uh, about conversations like this and why we love long form so much is because I think this is a verbal way to mimic the visual stuff that we really desire the most, right? Which is what Ryan was just saying a minute ago about there's a lot here. So come back over and over again to it, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sit back, listen again. Yeah, I mean, like a lot in. of good philosophy and thought is is meant to come back and chew on. So like when we when we started doing these, you know, we we were having open, we were having long form conversations. Like I was I was having, we were having our own independent experiences teaching. I was having people hang out for hours after class, mm-hmm. and I was like, for years of that, and then and people were saying things like, do a podcast, do a podcast. If you ever do a podcast, we'll listen. And and it's like I don't got anything to say, but. Gareth and I started talking, and it's like, okay, maybe we do. Uh, and you, then, yeah, you guys, you guys have wonderful things to say. Like, I listen to a lot of art podcasts, and usually I pick them by the quality of the artists being mm. interviewed because that's where the the real meat and content sure. is going to yep. come from. Mm-hmm. You guys, I have to say, are the only art podcast I listen to where, like, it is not dependent on the guest. Mm-hmm. to make it a quality conversation. Like in the studio when I'm working, like, you know, I've listened to a couple episodes recently um, where it's just the two of you guys mm-hmm. talking and it's, and it, and it's wonderful, you know? Um, uh, so yeah. And it, it's mature. It's kind of like, you know, what I, what I started this conversation with about like my breakdown, you know, having access to that level of, discourse that that maturity um i always feel like you know when you're talking to a real artist when they start talking about design not just as top bottom left right but when they also start talking about forward backwards mm-hmm. you know that's when you, that's that's when you know you're talking to, to you know you're getting into some real shit yeah. Yeah, yeah and um yeah and and you guys consistently operate at that level which is just such a breath of fresh air and I think such a service to the greater art community. So I just want yeah. both of you to know um, how Thanks, in, how intensely I appreciate um, what you're what you're providing and you know and I, you know and I'm excited. Yeah, like, you know, you guys have a, you guys and me have a very loyal listener and you know I'm trying to get as many of my friends as I can. We appreciate that compliment, man. Because Huge there's compliment. a challenge in it, you know, it's it means a lot here you say that because we're we're just doing it faithfully based on it's like we could like there's things you could talk about. But we've we've approached it with like what is just not what are we just missing? Yeah. Like you know it's like when you said like coming into your studio it's like well we're that's just missing. Yeah. And yeah. and like what are some of the things that are that are like truthful but not sexy to talk about? I mean, there's just there's there's just so much there that um and there's so many people talking about the other stuff too. So you're like like we're we're a, a puzzle piece amongst the puzzle pieces, I think the way we thought about it and the way we've tried to carry it forward. And um and and like and then you just know that there's like it's not going to hit everybody right away. It's kind of like what you said like it could take like a while for someone to actually catch on to like, oh gosh, like it like someone may have to have a lived experience to see the maybe the worth or the value of what we're talking about. Yeah, and I think it's it was, like yeah, I don't, I don't know, know. two thousand fifteen. Um, I think it was summer of two thousand fifteen. I was in New York doing a research residency at MoMA, and I was up there and I stole away one morning to go talk to um, this director of a national arts grant organization. And uh, I was just saying, you know, hey, looking for some funding for this idea. 
Um, and so he's like, well, what is it? So well, I really want to do a podcast on visual art and design. And he just kind of smirked at me and he was like, how do you do that? <laughs> and I was like, what do you, what do you <laughs> mean? What do you mean how do you do that? And I was like, hey, well, you know, people need to talk about it, right? There's, there's discourse, there's discussion. Yeah. Um, because that's, I think, uh, you know, we've said it before, but I think that's the thing that we, having gone through specifically grad school and maybe some undergraduate experiences as well, depending on um, where you were and who you were around, but especially through grad school, there's a, there's a level of discourse that we get used to. And we don't realize how much we needed it until it's gone. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that's part of, again, how you started this out, Miguel, right? Um, there's, there's, there, there are those things that are kind of missing. Um, yeah. And so these people are actually, back and then they're missing in some grad schools because I had it in Sacramento. And that's true. And I didn't have it at VCU, but VCU was supposed to be the better school. So I came here and was like so depressed mm-hmm. because it was completely missing. Like what we've talked about in three hours has more in it, what we, what's just happened, than two years of my experience in my MFA. Without question. Yeah, yeah. No, no, mm-hmm. And that's not a disrespect. It's just it utterly was, uh, was absent. And, um, you know, yeah. so, and, then, and then Gareth and I are independently having these desires and looking at the culture. And, like, one of the things that, you know, I was getting hounded by students, do a podcast, do a podcast, and, uh, or write a book, write a book. And I kept thinking, well, gosh, I want to write books, and I want to I do an art journal. I want to write. I want to write. But people don't read, and I'd be lying if I thought that that's going to be the most direct way to communicate right now. And so I was like, I thought, well, maybe if we do a podcast, that will create a readership. And so when I talked to Gareth, Gareth goes, well, you know, I've been wanting to do an art and design podcast myself, and I've already got some of the equipment lined up nice. that I'm actually, and I'm like, you're kidding me. And he goes, yeah, dude, like, because he had been out of town, he came back. And I'll never forget the look on his face. I was like, I'm thinking about doing a podcast, man. I'm, I'm thinking about doing a podcast on like art. And he just looks at me and he just like shakes his head. Well, it's, he, <laughs> it's the perfect format because when I'm in the studio, it being such a solitary um, act and stuff, like, you know, there's occasions where like, I like listening to music totally. when I'm cleaning, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, you know, when I'm straightening things up, when I'm gessoing, when I'm priming, you know, play albums. But when I get into the nitty gritty of the work, I feel like sometimes music can be too distracting. Yeah, because um, it's forceful. Yeah, I mean, it's got a certain, it's a particular nature to it. And I feel like, and I feel like, by not giving myself fully over to the music, I'm almost disrespecting it as a craft. And I find that uh, podcasts are perfect because it occupies a part of the brain that, that does not um, distract from the act of painting. Mm-hmm. You know, so I can be in the zone, I can be working, and I can have you guys talking and I can do it all without like one detracting from the other. Now, mm-hmm. if I get into a particularly difficult passage in the painting, you know, I, I can always put the podcast totally. on pause yep. mm-hmm. and time. then come back to it later. And um, so it's like, because it's not a visual medium, it is the perfect medium for visual artists. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, yeah. Dude, I agree with that. Cause I think that there are certain tasks. Like I know that if I'm, if I'm going through, like you said, kind of getting into the zone, uh, doing a lot of design work, especially long form stuff there are times when I need somebody else's voice in my head instead of mine, because my voice is going to be more detrimental to my work than somebody else speaking into my ear. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's yeah. a space that's always been fantastic uh, for a conversation, like in the studio in that yeah. regard. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think that's part of the, part of the experience of being an artist is like, I, I um, loved the friendship and 
weightiness of conversations that were happening when they happened in my formative years, like yeah. my, mm-hmm. my experience before. And so, and I just found that so, so far and few between. And I also have a litany of friends that are just like feeling exactly the way you feel. Like if you, if you said, Hey, I haven't had any conversations about painting in my studio. Like I feel the same way in, in, um, I mean, that's like, um, like that's almost all like everything that I, I guess like we're doing has something to do with that from like the documentary, like everything that we're doing is trying to push out here to recapture that, which I, we feel like is being lost. Well, well, I think a lot of it has to do with, um, you know, like galleries, curators, middlemen, critics, you know, they, they say their piece and they have their place, but there's been such this sort of, um, suppression of, you know, I, I hear people criticize, I always think of this as an example, like people who are critical of abstract expressionism. Mm-hmm. And you get deep enough into what the, their problem with it as a movement and everything, and they get into Clement Greenberg. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what the fuck does Clement Greenberg have to say <laughs> about what's going on in de Kooning's studio? Mm-hmm. You know, and then it's like, but then you read what, you know, in Clement Greenberg, it was so much about like, you know, the flatness of the picture plane, mm-hmm. the purity of painting, yep. the purity of removing the image, mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff. And then what does uh, what does uh, Philip Gustin say? I just got sick of all that purity, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and returns to figuration. Yeah. Yeah, 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 You know, it's like people confuse. And this is the problem, I think, again, with the university kind of education and people confuse the uh, the critique as we were saying earlier, you know, it's like having students read film criticism of films they've never watched. You know, people people have supplanted that the experience of the artist, the process of the art making, and the interpersonal relationship an individual has with that work of art has been replaced by the uh, the narrative, mm-hmm. you know, the critique, the... Um, you know, and stuff, and it's just so. Uh, you know, I would say bogus. the crit- yeah, the critique. So it's a disordered, it's disorderedness, and therefore uh, the emphasis is is off. So it's like the critique is even. It's not even the critique anymore. It's really just commentary. Yeah. So so the commentary disguised as critique, even. So I mean, mm-hmm. that's how retro, like or degraded degraded it actually is. Is that is that the commentary is confused as the substance of yeah. the experience. Yeah. And because it leaves you lacking, yeah. it drives you into um, further extrapolation and commentary. Commentary on commentary, but you, you're saying it as commentary on critique, and critique is the substance. And so then when that's why the university complains, students in the droves. I taught a, I taught a class called Visual Hermeneutics. It had 18 students in there from every major. And it had a 25-person wait list. And the students that left that class at VCU, it was an upper-level class, said it was the best critique class they'd ever experienced. And the reason why is, is it was wedded to, like, exactly, like, uh, I mean, it was wedded to, like, even just going into your studio. Like, the class started off looking at a box of, this is going to sound so dumb, I, I made a yellow box with cotton and a shiny object. And I sat the yellow box down and we just observed it. And in all these sculpture kids, these craft kids, film majors were like, why are we doing this? I was like, well, let's look at it. And so we just started from this really dumb place. And I put the cotton down. I was like, how does that change that? Like, 
And then we, and then we, and then I put the silver down. I'm like, how does that affect that? Does affect that? And we took it apart, put it back together again. And they started seeing these things happen. Then the next day, we read Avant-Garde and Kitsch. Then we went back and did a physical critique. Then we read Wittgenstein. Um, yeah. Then we went to a museum. Then we went to a studio, like a studio. And we, and like I kept moving between like base level and theory, and I kept mashing them together. And by the end, people were like, "Oh my gosh." I see it like they could see and the seeing was informing the thinking and it was displacing the thoughts that didn't. I mean, it was awesome. But then the next year, my contract changed. And so I didn't get a chance to teach it again. Um, but uh, and then the, the world has changed so much since that point. That was like 2012 or 13, something like that. Um, and so I'm and I, and I, I, you know, we just sit here and it's like, you know, we're talking about doing like studio mentorships and things like that because we're like this is just missing and it's not actually happening in academia. It just isn't. Mm-hmm. And I have to be careful, but like, I don't even know that it's permitted. Yeah. Because it's hard to, it's hard to quantify to you, to your point. I mean, you can't just like, you can't just box it in. I do have some, actually I've been thinking a lot about while we've been talking about quantifying things um, that are really qualities I think that's a, a very common problem, and I think uh, Gareth, it relates to what you were saying about, um, you know, how deeply ingrained this sort of consumer mentality mm-hmm. we have, and um, and I don't know, you know, some people would say it's like tied to like capitalism and stuff like that. I try not to phrase things in those terms because mm-hmm. I'm not a political scientist, and mm-hmm. um, and I, d- I don't want to talk in such broad generalizations about things that I do not have an adequate understanding of. Um, but I do know that we um, we often I think of in terms of uh, you know um, keep falling back on American pragmatism, but like you know William James, he says like a thought plus a thought is not a compound thought. A co- thought plus a thought is a brand new thought. Mm-hmm. That you know prior experience is altered in our perception by additional information. That you know when you add. I, I was actually explaining this to my students talking about cooking that, you know, when you bite into something that's delicious, you know, it's there that that flavor is emergent. You know, it's it's not something that you can say, oh, it's because of the salt. Oh, it's because of the cayenne pepper. Oh, it's because of, you know, it's like, no, all of those things together make for a qualitatively distinct experience. And I was trying to get the, them to understand this in terms of design and what and what is the end result of two-dimensional design Mm -hmm. that you know the space the color the texture it's it all comes together to make a um its own qualitatively distinct experience that all these things everything alters our perception of everything else it's it's relational i mean it's how we see color you know we see color is contextual relationships like a single wavelength of light has no content it only has content when it is set in relationship to other frequencies of light in which case you know the uh um what's it called the kind the uh opponency function of the cells in our eyes tell us warm cool bright dark you know muted saturated Nothing in the world is that in and of itself. Everything is relational and everything is impacting everything else as it is being impacted. 
and um, and it's and so much I think of art education and just how we understand the world in general is misguided, and that we think that there is that we think about things in these simple causal relationships, and nothing works that way. You know, things don't. It's not A affects B. It's A and B permanently alter each other and it and becomes both A it's and B. A and B it's A and B permanently affecting each other while being affected by things that we have chosen to exclude yeah. as we try to describe it. As we just choose right. to describe as we, as we and choose B, to yeah. describe A and B, we're like we're assuming everything. We like our finite our finitude uh, means that we have to assume in order to state um, or to observe. You have to assume a position which means you can't focus there in order to state a position. Yeah, and, and it applies to uh, everything. I mean, you know, I, I joke with, been joking with my friends all week about how everyone I know who's, who throws around the word intersectional, it's like the people who say that the most often are the people who seem to have the least understanding of what that means because the people I know who truly understand, like, intersectional dynamics and stuff you know, it's 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 a lived truth, not a theoretical one. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it need not be defined every time it is acknowledged. Mm-hmm. And uh, the way I described it to my students is, you know, when I took a class on um, feminist theory, um, my teacher, you know, uh, Dr. Moen, the one that I had lived with in Hartford, uh, she said, you know, like, let's say, say you have, like, racism and you have... Uh, sexism and you're a black woman who's getting both of those and let's let's make racism is orange juice and sexism is apple juice when those things are poured together into a single glass you can't then just simply separate the apple juice from the orange juice it is a new fluid now you know it is it is different and you can't go back words to this sort of like so it's like so you have to acknowledge that in that person's experience the way this thing comes at them is qualitatively distinct and um and the and things operating on this kind of emergent level um the more i think about it the more i realize like how many things are a product of emergence you know, you hit a, um, let's say, you know, somebody listening to jazz and they hit like a, you know, C augmented fifth flat nine. You know, the impact of that chord, not only does every single one of those notes contain overtones, notes inside the notes, which then affect each other in the vibration of the chord, it's also impact your perception is also impacted by the previous chord and the chord to come after and its placement in the rhythm rhythmic context with which it exists. So you have both a melodic, harmonic, and rhythmic and timbre because timbre will affect the sequence of overtones. And what you get in that moment listening to music is qualitatively like an emergent thing that cannot be explained away by one single part and we've we've grown to looking for these 
these simple explanations, whether it's how, um, you know, everything from uh, politics to uh, looking at a painting. You know, we, we, we try to lean on these, uh, I always think of this great Leonard uh, Cohen line um, from this song, Alexandra Leaving. He says, do not choose the coward's explanation that hides behind the cause and the effect. And, um, but that's what we do so often. And we have to realize that it's like things don't, it's not linear. Mm -hmm. um, my professor, uh, Dr. Barnes, he would always say that when human beings, when we finally press beyond this dependency on this kind of mechanistic thinking um, to one that is more oriented with uh, process and kind of change in all directions, you know, he, his, he always said that that will be as profound an impact on the human species as the invention of written language. And I, I think he's totally right. Um, but, we, and, but we can't hold on to these simple structures of thinking when the problems facing the world are so complex and yeah. systemic. It's a, it's a reductionism, and it doesn't... It's a move, like you're saying, it's a move away rather than a move towards. A move towards will humble you into needing others. A move away will enlarge you into thinking you're right yeah. at the level of simple explanation. And so... Um, uh, the, the simple explanation, um, kind of is like, I was trying to think, it's like we, we become knowledge, not, uh, we become agnostic to knowledge. So as we move further away from the problem, we enlarge further and satisfy for simpler explanations that deal with less and less of what is the case. And when what is the case is brought back to us, we're skeptical to the point of dismissive mm -hmm. in order to maintain the enlarged sense of self. And the enlarged sense of self is a distortion of perception because we're actually becoming what I would, you know, Gareth and I always talk about, which is like a perpetually less human person. Like we're becoming less and less. We're actually losing agency. We're losing our, our personhood or, you know, like you're saying, or your self understanding or, uh, you know, our understanding of other, the, um, you know, it's like when I was, when Gareth was talking about being in your studio, like he was employed, his imagination was employed and he was filling a space that had been filled with what had been filled and might be like, there was like so much happening and all of that um, is not permitted or afforded because the chief end is the maintaining of our, our standing and our, our uh, aggrandizement, if you will. And so, I mean, that's the, so it's like, um, Gosh, not to go. It's almost like it lands you in like barbarism, mm -hmm. um, and uh, that doesn't go well for yeah. and, and it doesn't go well for a while, and you can't build from that. Yeah, and I think you know this is for another time, but that's when you get into goofy things like uh, just the romantic, the longing for AI is like kind of a scary thing in my mind because we're. It's like I've watched Terminator. <laughs> no, I don't know, but but I mean, it's just we are. We, you know, if anything, if there's any merit to this, though, there is like someone has to take responsibility. Well, maybe it doesn't to be someone. Maybe it's something, and mm -hmm. um, and so that I can maintain my delusion. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's big gross. Gen I you know gross gener generality, but um, I feel like there's never been a more important time to fight for making and designing and 
doing the doing it in in doing it in opening the windows up like letting people in um that's that's why we always say like it's like a dead horse but know and be known like you have to do both you have to both know and be known and that has to be a constancy Mm -hmm. because of the variability of change and the 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 the, eat like you're talking about the emergence the the uh the possibilities um and uh that can have uh greater or more uh, like a rich impact um, can only happen if these other factors are at play. Like it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't happen independent of us. It happens at, it happens through us, you know, and happens through the work. And so I don't know, especially coming out of uh, COVID and what's going to happen in the future. Like I'm went through my depression with it in my uh, dormant state, as far as like thinking about what to do next. And now I'm kind of invigorated again to like, okay, we have to stay the course with adjustments, mm-hmm. you know? So, yeah, I don't know. You had a thought, Gareth? I was going to say, I mean, you know, talking about all that, it's uh, in the last few days, especially as we get toward the end of the semester, I've been thinking about that in between break and uh, I am not good at it, but I'm going to spend some time painting. Yeah. Um, mainly because I feel like, like it's, it's not just in relation to what we've talked about today. It's not just important to be doing that, right? It's not just important to be, um, spending the time and practicing and, and improving and everything. But within the larger dynamic of the things that I feel like the world around us uh, needs to have a part of it, like I feel like my like my kids need to see me do it. Mm-hmm. You know, like my friends need to hear me talk about it. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and not just me, but then as a space where it's like, oh yeah, and have you checked out this person? Mm-hmm. Right, I think there's something about the the practice and the pushing into those spaces and communities it's you know hugely important because um, as we get back to a place where we're more and more comfortable going to these events, where we're more and more comfortable uh, inside of a museum, inside of a gallery, and other things like that. Studios, I think it's going to be yeah. very important that it's not just a you know an escape into these spaces, but it is a is an extension. These spaces are extensions of the practices we're already doing, mm-hmm. right? Because I think a lot of folks are in that spot where they're like, oh yeah, a dormancy. Maybe I've got you know. Who am I going to show work to? So why am I even going to do it? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's important for all those practices to be there, uh, yeah. for them to be a part of it. If for nothing else, then you just don't want your reflexes to be dulled. You mm-hmm. don't want your your muscles to atrophy too much. Um, you know, and I know that. I mean, you know, obviously from our visit the other day, Miguel, you have been doing uh, a lot of work for a long time. Uh, I mean, I'm amazed by some of the scales of this stuff. I always love <laughs> seeing like. Um, canvases before they're fully finished and just the the magnitude of the the history that goes into a final painting right all of those layers um so i know you've got a lot of stuff you've been doing but you also got a lot of stuff coming up that you're you're a part of um so what sort of things are on your radar um well right now and unfortunately it'll it'll be closed uh, uh, when at the time that this broadcast but i just want to make mention of um you know, I've been a part of Inlight this year with 1708, working with uh, Dustin Klein, Alex Cricky, and uh, Josh Zarambo. Um, and uh, Dustin and Alex are actually old buddies of mine from high school who, you know, when the police started uh, tear gassing people um, uh, for 30 minutes before the curfew started, you know, when people... and tear gas people who were doing nothing more than taking a knee in front of the Lee Monument, that kind of triggered them into action. And uh, so they've been out um, night after night after night for five months uh, projecting images 
on the Lee Monument and, you know, they've been written up on, um, you know, CNN, New York Times, Washington Post, MoMA, like they're getting a lot of national attention for the work they've been doing and they've earned it. And uh, I'm honored that they asked me to be a part of this current installation that's at the Randolph Community Mm -hmm. Center, um, which oddly enough is where my dad was a lifeguard and where my parents met. And uh, Wow. um, But at the community Randolph Community Center. Um, so yeah, so that that place, it has a lot of personal meaning for me because for me, that was the center of black Richmond. Mm-hmm. Like that's the world I grew up in um, uh, that we wow. called the West End back before anybody acknowledged. You know, the current West End wasn't even on our radar. Mm-hmm. You know, we thought the fan and Randolph, that's West, you know. Yeah. It's West of downtown. Um, so, but it's... You know, they wanted um, me to paint the actual portrait that's in the installation of Marcus David Peters. Um, For those of you who don't know, he was a black man who was, uh, you know, fell victim to police violence here in Richmond. And so it's been a real huge opportunity to honor him. And what I think was brilliant on Dustin and Alex's part is they knew that I could speak to the personal, to that I could sort of speak through my work through a level of intimacy. And they saw a role for that in a broader um, political context and found kind of um, a significant and appropriate space uh, for me to help them accomplish their vision, which is much more outward. and so it's it's a collaborative piece between us four artists. Um, uh, it's mixture of painting, digital art, uh, and projection mapping. So it's this really cool kind of uh, combination of uh, analog and um, digital modes that I think uh, um, just in the tools employed speaks very much to the state of visual arts in our time. Um, here, I got a, uh, a cool mural project coming up, which I'm excited about. I don't, I don't want to say too much about that, but it's for a cause I really believe in, but I don't, I don't want to speak too much to that yet. Um, what else? Uh, next year in June, I'm going to be doing a workshop through, uh, Gage Academy in Seattle that I'm excited about, um that's going to focus a lot on the physicality of mm-hmm. paint. Um, uh, it's called expressive flesh because I know a lot of people who seek out this particular institution for education, um, art education, are looking for what I was looking for, you mm-hmm. know, that kind of more traditional uh, formal training. But I want to talk about uh, I, I want to cultivate this workshop to address the things that are being left out of the conversation, which are like, you know, the physical substance mm-hmm. of paint and the relationship that has to the figure as a subject. Um, and uh, I guess the last thing I want to bring up is uh, what is occupying most of my thought, which is uh, the show that I'm putting together for Eric Schindler Gallery that's going to be in January. Um, 
which, you know, some of these paintings I've been, I've painted and repainted. And, um, you know, I feel like it's kind of been um, years of thought kind of going into these works. And yeah, I'm kind of looking forward to the semester ending. You know, I told um, my wife, Christine, that, you know, I'm going to be I'm going to be scarce. You know, there's probably going to be a, a lot of nights where I just I'm going to sleep at my studio so I can get up in the morning and just keep. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to try and get into that unbroken headspace mm -hmm. and put together the best uh, possible exhibition I can for uh, where I'm at in my life right now, which I, I guess is all any artist can hope to do. But um, yeah, and it's so... Um, yeah, and I hope, uh, it's, it's reassuring that you guys responded so positively and constructively to the work and, um, I hope others do mm -hmm. as well. Uh, you were talking about scale, uh -huh. part of the thing with scale. I mean, I love paintings like uh -huh. that as well, but I also kind of want to kick other people in, in the ass and <laughs> like, I don't want to be the only one like... I say, if you're going to be ambitious, be stupid ambitious. Yeah. You know, like I think mm -hmm. of, um, uh, oh, what's his name? Um, Neil, the author Neil Gaiman mm -hmm. and Sandman. When you were talking about the kind of God's eyes view of mm -hmm. like that something can be, hold all of these different things. Mm -hmm. I think that's what Neil Gaiman can do as an author. Um, I think S Sandman's the most sublime thing I've ever read. This series of comic books. Um, and, but he talked about, I watched an interview with him where he said he aimed for failure. He said, I, I, I'm going to try and do something that I know is impossible, that I know inevitably cannot work because in dedicating myself to um, achieving the impossible, you know, it's going to take me further mm -hmm. than to sticking with what I know I can do. Mm -hmm. And that's really what I'm trying to do with this body of work is... I want it to be a, uh, like, I'm, I'm setting my goal. So I'm aiming so high, I know I'm not going to make it. But I know that where I land is going to be um, productive and fruitful yeah, growth. Yeah, pro probably further than what you're, where you land when we play it safe. I mean, yeah. I, I'm a, I teach that every semester. I'm like, I'd rather you fail at the expense of an aspiration that that seems to exceed your capacity because yeah. you'll land somewhere it's it's a it's a kind of doubling up on the amount of momentum you can gain in in movement and understanding and also when you retreat back into what's more of your um like your steady state uh kind of every day every day making that baseline is something you want to see elevated so that when that baseline's elevated it, it actually elevates the the aspirational, inspirational, mm -hmm. the inspired state. And there's continuity between those. There's not huge disparity where you're just like only working when you're inspired. But yeah. So if you expand on your steady state mode of making, you increase the likelihood of something super significant happening, if you will, like um, uh, beyond maybe what you hope for. And it doesn't guarantee it, but you don't lose in that way. You don't lose. You gain the possibility rather than losing it. I think about uh, one of my buddies, my friend Elliot, um, you know, he was helping me out with some, like, showing me how to lift weights. And uh, he was just like, push to failure, push mm -hmm. to failure. Yep. And sometimes I hear Elliot's voice in my head when I'm working in the studio going, push to failure, push to failure. <laughs> yeah. I feel like um, success is overrated. 
success is so overrated. It's like, because if you should be constantly failing, mm-hmm. um, because if you're not, um, and, and, and I think, um, and I don't mean succumbing to a feeling of defe- defeat or hopelessness, um, which can be very destructive and very painful, which I often, unfortunately, fall into the trap of. But, you know, th- there should be at the end of the process of making a work of art, you got to ha- still have that desire in you to be hungry for more. And if there's one way I think I've matured through COVID is it's given me time to listen to my paintings, um, listen to the kind of the, the technical narrative. Um, and uh, one of uh, my um, artists I briefly studied with uh, just for a weekend workshop, Vincent Desiderio, always talks about the technical narrative. And I was thinking, like, why does he always call it a narrative? Why isn't it the technical process mm-hmm. or the technical? And I realized it's a narrative because there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's when I'm laying out a painting and I'm choosing a certain um, mode of design, a certain, asp- you know, a certain arrangement of elements, you know, I, I'm, there's an establishment of a context, a language, a, a way of creating points of emphasis, a, a way of creating balance, like some sort of cohesive language of marks. And my problem has always been that I get halfway through the story and I think, but what if I told this story? And then I make a lateral movement. And one thing I've learned uh, through COVID um, and kind of the, in the silence of COVID is I can hear my work mm-hmm. and I respect my work and I respect my past ambitions mm-hmm. enough to give the, spe- the um, to do less telling mm-hmm. and more listening. Mm-hmm. to the work in the studio and letting those narratives find their natural conclusion. Um, I don't know. Do you guys know Harry Kolwitz? He's yes. A, oh, yeah. Or Kolowitz. Yep. Um, yeah, Harry's great. Yeah, I was talking with Harry. Harry about, is Richmond. Harry is Richmond. And, I, and I'm reading his book right now, um, Carlise Montgomery. And, and I just asked Harry, it's like, last night, I was like, why? Like, why this character... You know, there's so many things that just don't like, you know, you're a man, it's a woman. You're older, they're younger. Like, I, I, I couldn't see the through line because this character that he's poured so much thought and empathy into seemed like a person so far removed from himself, you know, and which is one thing, just a glorious celebration of, like, the, the power of human imagination and empathy, um, but his answer, he was, he's like, I didn't have a choice. She demanded it. You know, I didn't, he's like, I didn't ask to write this story. He's like, she did. You know, I was compelled. Um, and I guess that's sort of part of that whole kind of art, like my dad was saying, being kind of a, a priesthood and an answer to the calling. And um, and I don't know, I think, I think COVID's, um, COVID's been a real tragedy. Um, for this country, and I really wish things had gone differently, Um, but I think I made the best of it that in this, you know, kind of quiet melancholia that's sort of fallen over us like a blanket, I've had the space to um, listen to my calling with uh, 
keener ears. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't know. I hope, I hope that I, I hope that that adds up to something special. I think you came up with the title of your show in the silence of COVID. <laughs> well, yeah, it feels like it could be a good. I mean, it might be too heavy-handed, but it feels pretty. It feels real. I mean, it yeah. is. It yeah. is. It is the actual. It does mark the actual state we've been in, the state you've been in, and the the milieu that the work has been emerging out of. Mm-hmm. So this is interesting. Um, and so you're on Instagram, no? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's Miguel CF Studio on Instagram, and you can see my work at uh, MiguelCF.com. Um, unfortunately I am like, I'm very private about my work. So, uh, I probably won't post a lot of new images until people have an opportunity to see the work in person. Yeah. So, um, you'll see a lot of work that I've done back in like 2017 and 18. Um, but sit tight, give me a couple months and, uh, I promise you there'll, there'll be a lot of a lot of new um content um once this show is up. Yeah, but I can't wait to see this show. We will we will be yeah. there. We will be at the show, It'll Gareth and I in matching suits. Nice. So so that we distract from your show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I always I always I always fantasize that all my friends would show up to my exhibitions in the most ridiculous and flamboyant. So we're actually possibly fulfilling possible. a fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't know why I have this fantasy. Yeah. But I would just I would just love it if like my circle of friends just came in and one after another, people are just like like, okay, what is going on with that? Like, you know, why are they in matching suits? Like, you know, let's just let's just let's just let's just add to the mystery. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Twiddle D and Twiddle Dum just walked in. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably pretty close to it. Uh, well, this has been fantastic. This has been a great conversation. Epic. And it's one of those where, like, uh, I love what you said at the beginning that you said that I think that anytime we sit down, we could have a different conversation. And in my head, I thought, oh, is this the inaugural annual Miguel Carter Fisher conversation? Yeah, I think it is. You know, and I think it's there's good, like, dude, I do there's have so like five here, other things I want to ask yes, you about. Yes, definitely. So we're going to have I, you back on. Yeah, well, I, I promise that future future discussions need not be so. Well, now we, we've set out the terrain. Now we get to go into... That's right. Yeah. Like, I, I do... I For another day, I want to talk to you about murals. And we'll talk later. Yeah. Cool. So, <laughs> but until then, as we like to always say, we love you guys. You're a fantastic audience. And Thank we you will listening. catch you next time. Thank you, Miguel. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to Shaco Art Speak, a production of Shaco Art Space. We are an independent, nonprofit art gallery in Richmond, Virginia. We can be found online at ShacoArtSpace.com and in real life in historic Shaco Bottle.